You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 557. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 18th of February, 2023. A bus and a plane collide at LAX, injuring five people. Parents abandon their baby on a check-in counter in Tel Aviv after arriving at the airport without a ticket for the child. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, the Applegate Memorandum. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 557 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds on 92.3 FM in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining us from his studio... Hartford, Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Great to be back on the show. Really looking forward to it. And I'm home alone, so uh, if you see me disappear, I'll be sorting out the dogs or answering the doorbell. Sorry about that. That's just all part of the ambiance of the uh, APG. Also joining us from his home studio in the air capital, Low. No, that's not true. Uh, he is coming at us from Slow, which is San Luis Obispo, San Luis Obispo, California. Low and Slow pilot, newly certified A&P mechanic, old airplane enthusiast, and engineer in the aerospace and defense industry. It's Macho Man Nick Camacho. Hey, Jeff. Yep. Unlike Captain Nick, I'm not home at all. Uh... So looking forward to getting through uh, as much as we can while I have some time here. Excellent. Uh, great to have you with us for a, a bit. And also from her studio in Toronto, Ontario, 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 Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, it's Liz Piper. Good morning, everybody, from a sunny but chilly Toronto. Good morning. And... Let's have a good show, guys. All right, Liz. We'll see you or hear you. Stand by for news. All right, let's start off with this from the Los Angeles International Airport, a collision. This is actually from foxnews.com. 
there was a collision uh, between a passenger bus and a commercial plane on the uh, LAX tarmac late Friday night uh, last week. This is a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, or a couple of weeks ago. Okay. Uh, the Los Angeles Fire Department responded to a call at LAX around 10 p.m. where they found at least five people injured as a result of the crash. Four were then transported to the area hospital, according to Fox 11 Los Angeles. Authorities said the crash happened at a slow rate of speed as the jet, an empty American Airlines A321, was being towed away from the gate. A jet being towed tonight, this is a quote from uh, LAX operations, a jet being towed tonight from a gate to a parking area made contact with a shuttle bus. I guess it's maybe an, an employee shuttle bus, resulting in injuries to about five people. We thank our partners at LAFD, uh, Los Angeles Fire Department, for quickly responding and treating passengers from the bus. Other LAX operations remain normal. The five people hurt included the tug driver, who is listed in moderate condition, the bus driver, and two passengers who are believed to be in fair condition, and an LAX worker, according to the report. Hmm. It's a dangerous place. So that, that that was a collision between a bus and a bus. Is, is that what you're telling me, Jeff? I th- yeah. <laughs> However, uh, we um, yeah. Okay, I get you now. <laughs> Light bulb. It was yeah. It's early. It like, it's early for Captain Jeff. I'm sorry. I have to say, I just finished <laughs> training, which I'll talk about. You know, in the getting to know us segment. But uh, my brain right now is like so. Right. I'm not in my podcast mode at all. And I'm trying, I really am trying hard to, to get back in the podcasting gear, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a little frazzled. Sorry. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, I don't know. They said at a, at a slow rate, I don't know um, if that's well, true. Well, it looked like it gave it a fair whack. It did. I mean, the damage it's done to that poor damned Airbus. I know. Look at that. That's that, yeah, I know. It's uh, completely stoved in the, uh, the external uh, access door there to the uh, equipment bay and uh, ripped open the uh, fuselage, big dent in the radar. That's actually going to be pretty expensive. That photo that we're looking at right now of the uh, nose uh, below the radome area, it almost makes it look like, you know, sometimes they do the paint jobs on the nose, uh, the nose art uh, on airplanes and it looked like a, like the, like a mouth. Like a, oh, yeah. Like yeah. A, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, I wonder if that bus driver is going to have a little A321 silhouette on the side of his bus from now on. <laughs> he might. You know, to eat the first airplane I killed. Yeah. So I wonder if the if the shuttle bus hit the tug slash airplane or vice versa, or was it an equal effort? Good question. Uh, I, so, I have a good, good feeling that the. The uh, towed aircraft, aircraft under tow has right of way here. <laughs> I would think so, yeah. Yeah. What are you reckon, Nick? Well, I was just going to say, it looks like the bus hit the airplane at the very front, like head-to-head. Yeah. Is, that yeah, I thought how, so. How did, the, how, did the tow, how did the tow guy not get more injured? I mean, isn't that right um, where the tug uh, is? Mm-hmm. Unless, that, unless he was going around a corner. Yeah. Uh, so be. he'd okay. be leading the aircraft around the corner and the bus. Yeah. 
I, I, and I do wonder about these things because we see it often enough aircraft to aircraft, and sometimes you can understand that because, you know, you're driving a big piece of kit when you're taxiing an airplane or towing it come to that. Uh, and uh, sometimes your wingtip walkers aren't as efficient at signaling uh, hazards that they sh- as they should be, so sometimes these things happen. But uh, um, no, I, I really don't know. I You know, it's, considering the cost of the equipment that they're moving, it's amazing how blasé uh, some airport workers can be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those buses aren't cheap. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, let alone the airplanes. Yeah, the airplanes so, are uh, definitely not cheap. <laughs> um, and it was a at night, bit. you know, so you have limited visibility. That's obviously yeah, part, that's of the, part of the uh, setup. Luckily, here. it wasn't foggy. Yeah, it wasn't foggy. That's good. Uh, that was good. Blah, blah, blah. I don't mind the thing. It's editing. dangerous. The airport is a dangerous place. We've oh, unfortunately had Espec- like three or four stories about this in the past six Especially months. the ramp, you know, and I mentioned <laughs> yeah. that in previous, you know, re- relatively recent shows where you got to be careful out there. These accidents uh, are ramping up, aren't they? Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sorry for those of you um, who are listening to the audio podcast and you heard what Liz just said, but it's worth repeating for everybody else. She <laughs> said, you know, these accidents are really ramping up. <laughs> Pardon the interruption. When we're recording the show live, the only person who can hear me is Captain Jeff. Now he's decided to include my audio here in the post-show edit. Lucky you. Enjoy. Uh, well, I was just looking at um, the extra bit on my uh, show notes here, which says California prostitution law allows sex abuse to run rampant. So rampant. I wondered what, oh, if that had something to do with it. Oh, okay. Oh, they were distracted. Where are you reading that? I'm reading it in the <laughs> middle of my show notes. Okay. I think it's probably where an advert for another story must be. Has, uh, yeah, that's odd. Uh, appeared. Okay. Well, yeah, we should move on. Uh, <laughs> this is from the Aviation Herald, avherald.com. Uh, a Qatar or Qatar Airways Boeing 787-8 registration Alpha 7 Bravo Charlie Oscar performing flight 161 from Doha uh, to Copenhagen or Copenhagen. And Denmark departed Doha's runway 16 left in nighttime conditions, 2 o'clock in the morning, and had climbed to about 1,800 feet when the aircraft entered a steep descent, losing 1,000 feet within 24 seconds. That doesn't sound like a steep descent to me. But anyway, the aircraft was subsequently recovered, climbed out, and continued to Copenhagen, where the aircraft landed safely about six hours later. According to information the Aviation Herald received on February 7th, 2023, the first officer was pilot flying. At about 1,600 feet, the aircraft was cleared direct to the next waypoint, and the first officer attempted to turn towards that waypoint, flying manually and without a flight director. Uh, The captain was slow to put the direct into the FMS. Oh, okay. So the flight director was probably on. It just wasn't giving good information because the uh, manually flying first officer just started the turn, as a good pilot should. And the captain just didn't get the direct uh, to that waypoint fix in the FMS very quickly. Okay, but lost situational awareness, sending the aircraft into a descent that reached 3,000 feet per minute sink rate and exceeded the flap speed limits until the captain took control of the aircraft. 
and recovered about 800 feet above the water. Mm, that's not good. The occurrence was not reported to the authorities and only came to light later. ADSB data show the aircraft reached the 1,850 feet MSL measured to standard pressure, then entered a descent reaching 850 24 seconds later, while turning from 157 degrees true to about 110 degrees true, the aircraft subsequently leveled off momentarily and began to climb again. The airline reported on February 8th that they are aware of an incident on Flight 161 on the 10th of January, and internal investigations are ongoing, and the event has been immediately reported to authorities. So I would imagine that they, they get all this, this, this uh, in-flight uh, data and uh, in looking or perusing through it, they probably saw this kind of quite significant deviation from the uh, flight path. And uh, so they probably got, I bet those pilots probably got a phone call. Hey, did, you know, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, maybe <laughs> did you yeah. like, you know, Anything you how did everything tell us? go? Yeah. How'd that flight uh, from <laughs> yeah. Doha to Copenhagen? How was that? Hmm. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, our company used to do it. Uh, they would dump down all the data from every flight. And if uh, any flags were raised, and so they had, uh, you know, limitations on your angular bank, say, uh, rate of climb or descent, um, you know, major deviations, uh, it would flag up an event. And then the, um, the tape would be de-identified or the data would be de-identified and then uh, and a little inquiry would uh, happen between a few individuals uh, in the office uh, plus a, a representative of the pilots uh, to ensure that it did remain de-identified and they would look at the incident to see if it was something that they should um, require retraining or whether it was just something of a growing trend and then they would put out uh, information to all the pilots saying we're a bit worried we've had like three of these events so you know let's take a bit of care when we're doing this don't allow yourself to be distra distracted etc so that is one of the fantastic things about being able to take the data from a flight and examine it in detail. It's not to catch pilots out, it's to make sure that any trends that are occurring that might be occurring because of the company's SOPs or because of, say, some uh, new equipment that's being fitted that isn't working very well, or perhaps the uh, checklist uh, data flow isn't ideal, um, then uh, you get a chance to fix that before something more serious happens. Um, interestingly, uh, I was going to say that um, if I had a difficult bit of work to do on the FMS, so I was pilot monitoring and uh, we were given a director or, or some action that required me to spend more than a few seconds setting it up, I would... Um, take control of the um, the heading requirement uh, up there in the FMS and put it into manual and point the aircraft at the uh, required waypoint so that the pilot flying could use his flight directors. I, I wouldn't just leave him expecting him to fly through the flight directors in that um, he uses the basic information uh, that's available to him on his attitude indicator and ignore the flight directors. Uh, sometimes that can be a little bit 
confusing uh, until the flight directors are now pointing to the correct waypoint. Uh, to, uh, and some pilots are better at it than others. We're all capable of it, supposed to be. There are certain manoeuvres, safety manoeuvres, we do, say, on a parallel approach where we are required to fly through the flight directors. So to ignore the flight directors and look at the basic information behind. And every, every pilot should be able to fly using the basic attitude and information without... Uh, doing something like this. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm getting eaten to death by our new dog. Okay. <laughs> well, do we need to call somebody to help you out? <laughs> Not until my arm is completely gnawed to the elbow. Um, yeah. So, um, <laughs> overall, uh, I'm a bit disappointed that the captain was head down for quite so long. Mm -hmm. I'm very disappointed with the FO that he couldn't. Um, managed to do this manoeuvre without such a major loss of situational awareness. Disorientation is a, a term I would probably have used. Um, so, yeah, I'm not surprised there's an investigation going on. Definitely some additional training required here. Absolutely. Ha yes? I was just going to say, how do you handle that uh, with an FO? Like, if you're the captain, uh, do you debrief that and say, hey, you know, by the way, it helped me out if you do, if, y you know these certain actions would help me out as a captain or do you just not deal with it? You just try to fly with the same person every time like captain Jeff. So you know what the guy's going to do. <laughs> um, I would expect my first officer to take control of the situation. After all, he's the guy flying it. I would expect him to say, Oh, can you give me heading of this, this, which will be more or less direct to. And uh, once you're established uh, on the new heading, uh, then he'd say, oh, could you update the FMS, please, and uh, give me a direct to that waypoint. Yeah. Uh, good crews will do that almost without being asked because mm -hmm. they anticipate the needs of the pilot flying. But it's nice that you you both, if you say it, verbalize it, then at least you're on the same wavelength and there's no confusion about who's doing what. Exactly. That's uh, I would call it a best practice, what uh, Captain Nick, described on how to handle that situation with the uh with the automation or the direction from the automation but isn't nick asking um, what would you do in this case after he screwed oh up? okay so liz is asking uh, maybe nick camacho is is really referring to like how how would you debrief this after it happened is that what you're saying camacho well uh, yes and no i mean okay. I, I was more yeah i mean I, I was more like a uh you know, it, I don't know. And I, I may have misunderstood Nick a little bit, but I was I was thinking that he he was saying, like, there's an action that's not a specifically prescribed action, but it's like you said, a best practice that it, in that scenario, it, you would always want the guy to do a similar type of thing. Yeah, um, the, the exactly right. Uh, the uh, problem with flying through the flight directors is that the only part of the flight director you uh, wanting to ignore is uh, the lateral bar, not the vertical bar that's giving him climb uh, mm. indications. So you don't want him to uh, continue to fly in the wrong heading. You want him to start turning towards the correct one. So he should keep the aircraft symbol or the um, just the, uh, yeah, on the uh, correct climb bar, vertical bar, uh, and then um, just not ignore the heading bar until you can get him on the right heading, in which case that bar will then center up. Uh, and once you've got the direct two, then it will become more refined because the navigation system is now pointing him directly at the uh, 
um, new waypoint. The important bit about this, though, is is the climb. Um, for some reason, he sort of ignored his vertical profile. The only adjustment he required was to the horizontal program uh, profile, but uh, he allowed himself to be distracted somehow uh, and allowed the nose to drop. So what was going on, I don't know. Yeah. Um, just quite right. Uh, he lost a small amount of height in... 24 seconds, uh, 1,000 feet in 24 seconds. So that's only about 500 feet a minute. But uh, he probably <laughs> probably didn't do it all in Let's one go. That's 2,000 <laughs> feet a minute. Yeah, it's actually uh, just shy of 3,000 feet per minute. Okay, right? yeah, that's um, what I was going to yeah. get. He, he reached 3,000 feet. Mm -hmm. that's the, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, at first when I saw that, yeah. I thought, well, that's not really – that much and then i did the math in my head and went yeah. oh i guess it is almost three thousand feet yeah. per minute sorry so, about that yeah but um regarding the uh now some people who aren't pilots may be wondering what we're talking about when we say fly through the flight directors um on most modern airplanes uh that have you know modern avionics uh for for quite some time now uh, we have a flight director system that basically gives you these bars, and the most common is like a vertical bar and a horizontal bar that show up on your primary flight display or your attitude indicator. And uh, it kind of suggests that that um, you should, you know, bring the pitch up or start a bank to, to start turning to do whatever it is that the auto flight or flight director system thinks you should be doing. Uh, but there are times like this when you get an immediate turn and you need to fly over a, in a different direction, and that requires that somebody put in that new um, uh, waypoint in, as the primary fix and you know do all the typing and hit nav to make sure that it's going in that correct direction. And sometimes it is, for some of us, you know, it may have been an old guy like me who takes a little bit longer than the new kids on the block who can like not even look at the screen and not even look at the uh, the the keys on the fms pad and probably do it like in like seconds um and uh so the i think the first officer was doing the right thing by okay you know the air traffic control is expecting us to do this right now so while the captain over there does his thing i'm just going to go ahead and start the turn uh and so flying through the flight directors means that you are you're uh, kind of ignoring, uh, and and Nick made a very important point. You should be ignoring the the vertical bar that's telling you which way to turn, uh, not the not the uh, horizontal bar which is telling you what to do with your pitch. And as he was turning to the left, kind of raw data or flying through the flight directors, he didn't use his fundamental flying skills by allowing the uh, the the nose the pitch to drop. And that's where that when they got into that descent, a little disorientation. Now it is at night uh, or early in the morning, very very dark, right over the ocean. So it's it's very that's a challenge uh, when you're hand flying and you're using raw data or you're flying through flight directors and that kind of thing. You have to know your pitch settings and your power settings. And so if you if you know about where your pitch and power should be, you should be fine. But um, uh, I uh, Nick. Um, Come, uh, Nick um, Anderson, <laughs> sorry. Do, would you guys, one of you, turn change your name, please? Um, <laughs> sure. When uh, 
when I'm flying and we get a uh, this kind of a situation, I do exactly what Nick says, and I just you know, uh, slew the heading bug over in the general direction of where you know that fix is. You know, sometimes you might have to take your navigation display and back it out a little bit, you know, a little bit larger view, and okay, there's the fix that they want us to go direct to. Okay, I'm going to slew the heading bug over that way, get the and pull the in my case on my airplane, pull the the little um, selector knob out, and then that. Uh, activates the heading select mode and then your flight director bar moves to the left if that's where the fix is supposed to be and then you have you you can use the flight directors um you know both laterally and um pitch wise and then once things are kind of pointed in the right direction and then the fix is in there and it's the active waypoint boom hit nav and now you're back to normal and uh, that's that's a uh, uh, best practice, in, in my opinion. So, yeah, I mean, there are several ways to skin this cat, but that's mm-hmm. the most common way that right. uh, our crews would deal with and it. Sometimes I would actually, or in in day to day operations, when we get something like this, and if it's a big turn in nav, it generally gives you kind of a wide, long turn. In heading mode, it gives you a more direct a tighter turn to get going to that uh, waypoint they want you to go to so a lot of times i'll tell my first officer you know give me a heading over in that direction and then they're kind of just you know popular waiting to hit that nav button i go well let me get a little bit more of the turn out of the way and then once we're you know almost pointing toward the waypoint then we'll nab it um and that's because i just like to you know get the turn out of the way a little bit quicker um than using the nav computed turn radius uh, but, uh, anyway, that's just another way to skin the cat as, uh, Captain Anderson just mentioned, but you did also mention Nick, uh, you know, t- downloading data, uh, to determine if there is some kind of a trend going on, but I wouldn't imagine that this would be a problem at all. And you'd probably never have any kind of a incident uh, that would, Oh, wait a minute. Our next news item <laughs> is from the yes. air current. Never mind what I just said. Apparently, maybe this is a trend. Uh, a United Airlines Boeing 777-200 came within about 800 feet of impacting the Pacific Ocean off the north coast of Maui shortly after takeoff in December 18. The occurrence, not previously reported, hmm, uh, adds a series of extremely serious safety incidents and major operational disruptions within the U.S. aviation system in recent weeks. Flight 1722 from Maui to San Francisco left Kahalui Airport uh 2:49 p.m. Hawaiian time in stormy weather okay so this was not at night uh and initially appeared to climb normally granular data analyzed with flight radar 24 showed the aircraft reached roughly 2200 feet before beginning a steep dive that according to the tracking telemetry reached a descent rate of nearly 8600 feet per minute now that's, that's pretty that's significant The aircraft quickly recovered, but not before descending below 775 feet. Two people familiar with the incident said the climb produced forces of nearly 2.7 times the force of gravity on the aircraft and its occupants as that steep descent transitioned to an 8,600 foot per minute climb. The entire incident appears to have stretched no more than 45 seconds and in between radio calls with air traffic controllers in Maui. According to live ATC recordings reviewed by the Air Current, the aircraft subsequently climbed to 33,000 feet and landed in California 27 minutes early after the four-hour, 15-minute Pacific crossing. 
The Boeing wide body, configured with 364 seats, was quickly turned around at San Francisco and departed to Chicago on its next flight about two and a half hours later. Um, let's see. An analysis of granular data from Flight Radar 24 of United 722's departure from Maui showed a steep dive and recovery. The airport was facing heavy rain at the time. And the apparent steep descent came just after the aircraft entered overcast skies at 2,000 feet. The aircraft reached an observed downward vertical speed of 8,500. Okay, we talked about that. Um, we talked about the G-forces. Weather information available at the time of departure. Heavy rain. Okay, they're stating that again. Um, it's not clear if the abrupt dive and recovery of the flight was noticed by ATC controllers or air traffic controllers in Maui. Um, one senior aviation safety official said such an extreme dive would normally prompt a call to the aircraft to ensure there was no threat of hijacking or continuing issues maintaining control of the aircraft. Uh, the incident, which appears to have escaped any commentary on social media, came, well, <laughs> until they released this report or this uh, article. Um, aboard, a, uh, aboard a Hawaii Airlines flight from Phoenix to Honolulu during severe term. Okay. Oh, came the same day as that uh, turbulence incident of the Hawaiian Airlines. Um, three was it an Airbus three thirty? I think that was descending and injured uh, twenty five people. Yeah, remember that? Yeah. Uh, so there was you know stormy weather, nasty weather. Yeah. Um, so there there has been speculation um, in the aviation community about what happened here. Uh, one. Um, speculation is that the uh, crew maybe initially were hand flying they go into the overcast uh, the bottom layer now they're in the weather auto flight system is engaged and remember that incident um was it last year or a couple of years ago uh, uh in the middle east um a triple seven was taking off and then some for some stupid reason <laughs> the airplane started leveling off and then descending shortly after liftoff and they just barely missed hitting uh, a residential area and they i forgot how close to the ground they ended up getting before somebody decided that that was not a good idea and they continued to climb you remember they put the uh, in the altitude uh select window they put in zero 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 and uh, so when they engaged the auto flight system, or in this case, I think that, well, I'm not sure if they were hand flying or not, but, um, they were just blindly following the flight directors, not flying through them and, you know, setting the, the appropriate pitch, uh, setting and power setting to, you know, make it a safe, normal kind of a departure. And they just blindly followed the flight director, uh, pitch bar downward, right in, you know, heading toward the ground. And that was all, almost a major catastrophe. And they're thinking that there is some speculation here that that's what happened. Once they engaged the autopilot, it went, oh, okay, you want me to descend to zero. And so it just started going down very rapidly. I don't know if that's the case or not. Of course, that's, as I said, just speculation. Um, but anyway, it's concerning. There are a lot of things happening lately that really is, uh, is, is concerning. No, I have to agree, Jeff. Uh, you know, this is eerily similar. Certainly, uh, in the height or the part of the flight that it occurred, and the height they got down to, um, uh, and the fact that they, you know, climbed back up again as if nothing happened and carried on, and no one 
outside of their company probably would have known about it, which is a little bit worrying because this you've got to, got to share this sort of incident around a little because these two companies, completely different countries, uh, they're flying the same uh, manufactured aircraft, but one's a 777, the other one's a 78. Um, you know, not a lot of similarity. Uh, so... Uh, you know, if, if you don't make these things, put these things on the sort of worldwide database, then other companies never find out about them and you don't realize that there might be a problem that's affecting, uh, you know, your company, their company, everyone has the potential. So, yeah, uh, and it is a worry. This aircraft went down very fast. So, you know, I, I'm wondering if, if there was a stall involved, but we don't have any speed indications yeah, as if, you know, someone let the airplane get very uh, slow or whip the flaps up when they weren't supposed to. I don't, we don't have any information like that, but that would possibly be another cause why it descended so fast. Uh, it really was quite a, a steep descent and then required a lot, a lot of pull at the bottom of this maneuver to get it going back up again. Uh, 2.7 G exceeds the airframe maximum G capability most airliners uh, in the clean configuration are limited to only two and a half g maximum g 2.7 has obviously exceeded that so from just from that point of view i'm a little surprised they carried on for their flight um and didn't uh, return immediately to have the aircraft checked out having over g'd it uh, only marginally so you know you might say oh that's that's not really worth thinking about but yeah well it's at least a required inspection um yeah to ensure that nothing was overstressed and yeah so do you really want to complete your entire flight before you get that inspection oh, that's a matter of judgment from the crew um interesting one though it, and the fact that air traffic didn't pick it up um that i'm not quite so surprised with unless their equipment w should have alerted them uh you know through the altitude change that was unexpected and very rapid um so yeah i i'd like to find out some more about this but whether we will or not i don't know is is mm -hmm. it a, being reviewed by the ntsb do you know i uh not I, sure i believe it is because there was i think it is uh, now well no Okay, um, we have, uh, let's see, I'm looking at the bottom of uh, Simon from uh, Aviation Herald to see if he says anything about that. Um, they oh, they put out, the crew did a voluntary safety report. Is that one of the yeah, yeah. NASA mm -hmm. reports yeah. you guys can do? A NASA report or an ASAP, uh, probably, or both. Yeah. Um, hmm. So I, it's interesting that they say it was not a reportable or serious incident. Um, but An over -G the over G normally. part of it, you know, I would think that that airplane is modern enough to have all these, um, uh, data collection devices that would, you know, indicate at least to the pilots or maybe somebody back at the headquarters of the company that the airplane did exceed a, um, a G limitation. Oh, golly, <laughs> if that had been an Airbus, <laughs> yeah, all the alarm bells would be ringing. <laughs> the trip is up in 200. Maybe it's old, an old enough. headquarters. <laughs> yeah, be like those guys waiting for you in your F-18 in um, 
in uh, Alice Springs. Oh, Alice absolutely, Springs. yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I, you wouldn't even get that far. Uh, you know, within five minutes, the ACARs were to start spitting out this, uh, excuse me, mm-hmm. <laughs> what have you guys been doing? Yeah. I mean, we used to get that with, uh, you know, oh, excuse me, have you noticed anything wrong with the number four engine? And you go, <laughs> no. Oh, okay, we were, we were just wondering. Uh, why are you asking? <laughs> because the engineers back at headquarters got more information about what was happening to the aircraft and the engines uh, than we did in the airplane. Yeah. So, uh, It's crazy. Yeah, they're they, they get, as, a, as you said, a lot of times they get um, more information than, uh, than we Big have. Big Brother is watching. Yeah, Big Brother is definitely watching, Liz. Um, Main Man Micah in our live audience says, if I read it correctly, it's not being reviewed by the NTSB because it was not an accident. That could very well be. Uh, maybe it, this is more for the, uh, for the FAA to uh, kind of take action and investigation. I'm not sure. But uh, I don't know. Uh, we shall see if like anything comes calls. of this. Uh, I'm sorry, say again, Liz. Just don't like all these close calls. Yeah, I don't like all these close calls either. Nobody does. Uh, I, th- I think I'm the most. Admit- sorry, Nick. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say uh, the flying aspect of it is terrible, right? But I was amazed that I mean, two and a half, two and a half G's is significant, and I would think that there's enough people flying regularly that were on that airplane. Um, that would have thought that that would have been a unusual situation. I'm amazed that it was never reported or didn't spread like wildfire on Twitter because I feel like there's all sorts of m- far less relevant things that happen <laughs> on airlines and everywhere else that become like gigantic issues on Twitter or yeah, various forms like, of social media. Like using thrust reverse. Yeah. Oh my God! There's a hole in your engine. You're quite right. Uh, oh, we're going to get to that hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we'll uh, we'll see if any it, it, what if anything comes from that. Uh, let's do item D next. A final report. Uh, this involved uh, is it Widero or Widero? Widero. Widero. Uh, De Havilland Dash Eight uh, Three Hundred. Registration, Lima, November, Whiskey, Foxtrot, Oscar, performing Flight 577 from Christiansund to Bergen, Norway, was en route at flight level 220, about 250 nautical miles north of Bergen, when the aircraft entered severe icing. The crew turned west over the coastline while descending to flight level 160, where no icing had been reported. Eventually, the ice broke off, but affected both of the engines, Pratt & Whitney 123s, the aircraft needed to descend further to flight level 120. The crew finally managed a safe landing in Bergen about 45 minutes after leaving flight level 220 and about 25 minutes after the ice broke loose. Uh, Norway's Statens Havarikommission for Transport rated the occurrence a serious incident and opened an investigation. Do you think I was really going to attempt to pronounce that on my own yeah i was i was really was hoping <laughs> well here let me let me let me do it again um statens havari commission for transport i was using my high voice that's very good jeffrey <laughs> you went <laughs> thank you <laughs> the occurrence aircraft remained on the ground for five days before returning to service uh on the 9th of february 2023 
they this this organization <laughs> um, uh, released their final report, concluding the probable causes were while climbing, they inadvertently flew through an area of severe icing conditions, and the crew did take corrective action by changing course and altitude. However, they were unable to sufficiently limit the duration of the aircraft's exposure to severe icing conditions. As a result, ice formed in the aircraft and inside the engine's air inlets. Uh, let's see. On approach to Bergen Airport, the aircraft lost engine power on the left engine, then on the right engine, and then on the left engine again. And the aircraft's automatic ignition system restarted both engines, but the startup sequence took time, and the aircraft was, at a point, completely without engine power for a brief period. The engines flamed out due to ice detaching from the engine's air inlets, and the ice entered the combustion chamber as slush, or the ice either entered the combustion chamber as slush and water and caused a flame out or disrupted the airflow into the engine sufficiently to stall it. Uh, the crew acted professionally in a highly demanding situation and landed the aircraft safely at Flesland, uh, Bergen. Um, so uh, the uh, investigatory uh, uh, agency basically said, hey, they... They, they did well. Uh, they did the right thing. It was a, a, not something that they expected to fly through, and uh, they, they did their best to. Uh, but it was interesting that part of this report um, mentioned the, uh, the racket that the ice was making as it was being flung off the uh, propeller blades. Um, and the cabin attendant found the situation dramatic with abnormally strong shaking, vibrations, and loud bangs uh, as the ice shed from the propeller hit the side of the fuselage. Uh, they they uh, interviewed the crew, and they said they didn't think it, it was a big deal. It was more annoying than something that was concerning as far as safety was concerned. But I don't know about you guys, but uh, that would probably be something I'd be concerned about. I mean, uh, hearing, hearing all those big noises and the pieces of ice you know, being slung into the fuselage and shaking the entire airplane. Man, that does not Yeah, I must fun. admit, if I was going to book a seat on one of these airplanes, I would not want to be sitting right beside the propellers. In front of or behind, that's fine. Because uh, they're not necessarily on this type, but similar twin props. These propellers have been known to break up and punch the fuselage. And I guess Camacho, uh, <laughs> uh, they build like extra reinforcement around those areas of the fuselage is that right yep yeah on the c-47 we have ice shields which is basically just a secondary piece of sheet metal that is easily replaceable so if you you know if you get a ton of ice and you have and it you have a reasonable enough amount of damage that you want to replace it it's pretty straightforward to replace the ice shield versus having to you know do surgery to the airplane yeah Sam Dawson in our audience, uh, he flew ATRs. He said flying ATRs in the winter, that was not uncommon. So I guess, I guess, yeah, yeah I mean, when you probably first hear it, it probably shakes you up a little bit, but then after a while you realize that, okay. Well, I, yeah. I, I think they moved all the ATRs down to the Caribbean because of that, right? Oh. I mean, American Eagle, I know that they had yeah. that uh, stall and holding with icing. And I think right after that they did, uh, they moved all their ATRs. Okay, down to the Caribbean. The slinging of ice, not the engines failing. Okay, he's making he's <laughs> making sure he's clarifying 
that uh, he it was not uncommon for the the ice to be slung off the propellers. Not, but it was not a common thing for the engines to actually flame out. I don't know those uh, ATR pilots; they're tough. I mean, in the Airbus, we just made snowballs and threw them at each other, but <laughs> slinging chunks of ice around. Oof! That's, yeah, that's not good. Yeah, my dad did mention when they were flying the Goon back and forth to Europe a couple of years ago that that was one of the more disconcerting aspects of it to him when he was when he had uh, a couple legs up front and they flew yeah. through a little bit of ice the ice hitting the cockpit at 3500 feet or however high they were with no land in sight <laughs> I, I mean i was just going to make the general comment this is a very detailed uh, report from the captain um, about what happened, uh, what actions they took, um, what heights they were flying at, which engines failed, etc. Um, particularly during the approach, when they at one point I think don't think they had any engines going. Um, so I, I, I have to take my hat off to him because if I had to write a report like this, you know, <laughs> I don't think I could have managed half that amount of detail. But I mean, he really gave the investigators a good idea of what they were doing. So no wonder they. Uh, were able to comment favorably on his actions. Yeah. This is um, uh, from the final report that I'm showing on or sharing my screen, and we'll have this in the show notes. A uh, picture of the ice on spigot. Now, a spigot, uh, which is uh, not pronounced correctly by a lot of young people here in this country, it's not a spigot, it's a spigot. And, uh, but that usually has something to do with the, like a, a water, um, like a valve or shuttle or a faucet. Uh, in this case, uh, the, a spigot is also, and that's a, mostly a U.S. uh, Canadian, uh, thing, I think. But, um, I guess on uh, most parts of the world, a spigot is, um, like a peg or some kind of a, uh, structure like what we're seeing here. I think that's the windshield wiper blade um assembly and uh, that's one of those things at least on all the transport category aircraft that i've flown we kind of use as something that's right in front of us right outside the front window that we're looking directly through and you can see um the uh like the the what the no the the bolt uh i think is what we are looking at to see if any ice is forming on that and that's a very good indication for us that that uh, airframe uh, icing, you know, wing and tail icing might be occurring. Uh, but I've never seen anything like what we're seeing in this picture. That's a, a very large uh, chunk of ice that's forming on the uh, on that protrusion uh, direct uh, directly outside the uh, windscreen of the aircraft. Um, and then here is a. You've got me thinking now because we have one on the Airbus uh, on the center uh, split between the two uh, front windshields um, that stuck out like that. Yeah. Uh, and it was actually illuminated. It had little uh, bars of illumination on it. It was about uh, a couple of inches long, uh, probably about five centimeters. Um, and uh, I, we knew it was there to see if it was uh, – <laughs> There was ice in the air because that's one of the first things that the ice, you know, we, ice, we could watch ice form on it. But I couldn't remember what it was called. Was it really called a spigot? Well, that's what they're well, calling know. it in this report. Uh, I ne- I would never refer to it as a spigot. Maybe translation from the Norwegian. Yeah, it might be a translation from the uh, Norwegian. You're, cor- uh, you're right, Liz. But here's a picture of the 
aircraft where you can see a little bit of the um, ice still on the leading edge and the nose, and here's a little bit more detailed. Oh, yeah, that, uh, and that's after it landed. Nose, isn't it? And it was like eight degrees uh, C uh, and rain at the airport, so plus, it's yeah. well above. Yeah, plus eight. Um, so it was well above freezing temperatures, but that shows you how much ice they picked up because it was still on there, even though the, you know, the atmosphere yeah, and on the front of his spinner as well. Mm -hmm. wow. And you can see that's the air intake over there on the, on the right side of that, uh, where the ice probably formed like that uh, on the spigot. And then finally just, uh, when it, when it chunked off, it just got sucked right into that air intake. And, uh, they did uh, notice that there was some damage to the compressor blades caused by the ice that came off the engine inlet. Um, mm. Yeah, wow. so. Lots of info. They did a good job, uh, this crew, on uh, yeah. you know managing the situation professionally, as the, uh, uh, the agency mentioned. And I can't find that uh, sound effect, so I won't do it. <laughs> All right. I hall boxes says... Would it not be called an ice indicator? Oh, yeah. Could, I don't know. Uh, I-Hall Boxes says, would it not be called an ice indicator, Captain Nick? <laughs> we used to get ice, in, ice uh, warning indicators uh, mm -hmm. underneath the nose that uh, came, brought up a caption. They, they uh, vibrated. And if the frequency of the vibration uh, changed because ice was forming, we used to get ice detected and then severe ice detected as a warning this was just a visual only so i don't know if you'd give it the same name uh, as the bits that the automatic detectors underneath the aircraft or not i have a nice detector below my nose my mustache yeah i can always tell when ice is like up you know, like when you're drinking and the, yeah the ice kind of hits it yeah. <laughs> he has oh, one I on his microphone <laughs> okay uh, okay stop in time all right, let's continue. Let's go to California. Let's go to California, Stockton. Uh, we talked about this uh, shortly after it occurred in September of 2020. Uh, a a uh, Warbird, a North American B-25 November crash landed near Stockton in a field. And uh, so we covered that. And uh, they're just now uh, publishing the final report. Uh, when the while the airplane was in cruise flight and being flown by the co-pilot, left engine fuel pressure fluctuated, which was followed by a brief loss of engine power. Concerned that the airplane might have a failed engine-driven fuel pump, the pilot turned the boost pumps to high and asked the passenger, the uh, airplane's mechanic, to open the fuel crossfeed valve. As the airplane approached its intended destination, both fuel pressure needles began to fluctuate. The pilot assumed that fuel starvation to the engines was occurring and decided to make an off-airport landing in a field behind the uh, their airplane's position due to residential areas located between the airplane's location and the airport. The pilot stated that he took control of the airplane from the co-pilot, initiated a right turn toward the field, and that shortly afterward, both engines lost power, total power. During the landing roll, the pilot observed a ditch in front of the airplane and was able to get the airplane airborne briefly to avoid the first ditch. However... That second ditch always gets you. Uh, he was not able to avoid a second larger ditch. Uh, subsequently, the airplane struck, struck the second ditch, became airborne, and impacted the ground, which resulted in substantial damage to the fuselage. 
Um, did I include some of the pictures in there? Yes, Liz? Sir. Okay. Uh, it, in the field, uh, that it kind of looks like they, you know, landed gear up, but I'm thinking maybe that second ditch and subsequent impact with the ground just sheared off the gear. I don't know. They're pretty, that's pretty beefy gear, isn't it? Uh, Nick Camacho. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yep. Recovery company personnel reported that during recovery, the wreckage about one gallon of fuel was removed from the two forward and two aft wing fuel tanks. Whoa. That's not a lot of fuel. Um, no. Post-accident examination of the airplane revealed no evidence of any pre-existing anomalies that would have precluded normal operation of either engine, except that all four main fuel tank fuel gauges displayed erroneous indications after each tank was filled with water. Well, there's your problem. Don't fill the fuel tanks with water. Oh, this is after the crash. And you get icing. Yeah, you get icing. No leaks were observed throughout the fuel system. The airplane was last refueled on the day before the accident with 497.7 gallons. When the airplane was last refueled, the fuel tanks were reportedly filled to about three inches below the fuel filler neck. The investigation could not determine, based on the available evidence for this accident, how much of the airplane's fuel load a maximum capacity of 670 gallons, uh, the, how much was on board after it was refueled. Additionally, the pilot reported that he commonly used a fuel burn rate of 150 gallons per hour for flight planning purposes. That figure included takeoff fuel burn, uh, takeoff fuel burn, recorded automatic and uh, dependent surveillance broadcast data, ADSB data, shows that the airplane had flown four hours and one minute since refueling and included six takeoffs and five landings. Uh, as part of the investigation, the pilot estimated that 485.9 gallons of fuel had been used since the last refueling. However, on the basis of the pilot's initial fuel planned fuel load and recorded flight times, the airplane would have used about 600 gallons of fuel. The pilot later submitted an estimated fuel burn for the flight's uh, since refueling of 485.9 gallons. The flight manual did not have fuel burn references for the exact power settings and altitudes flown. Thus, the hourly fuel burn could not be determined. Pilot, co-pilot, passenger did not, did not visually verify the fuel levels in all four main fuel tanks before this accident flight. Mm. The pilot also underestimated the amount of fuel that would be used for the planned flights. As a result, fuel exhaustion occurred which led to a total loss of engine powers, uh, power. Um, yeah, so a, a classic fuel exhaustion accident. And uh, there were a couple yeah. of serious injuries and, 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 some, and one minor injury of the three. Yeah, it's, it's very sad because this is an incredibly valuable aircraft. Uh, I'm just uh, looking at, the pilot's statement that uh, he estimated the aircraft would have used about 600 gallons of fuel, um, which would have well exceeded um, what no, the, fuel the pilot, they had on board. The pilot said that he thought they used 485. Okay. And then as uh, part of the On the basis of the pilot's initial fuel planning load and recorded flight times, the airplane would have used about 600 Right, right. So that's, I think what's happening there is the pilot said he thought they used 485 gallons, but then right. the pilot also said the fuel burn is 150 gallons an hour. So then the accident board went back and looked and the airplane had flown four hours. So the accident board saying, if you're burning 150 gallons an hour and you flew for four hours, 
gotcha. you've burned six about 600 gallons. So I, yeah. I think that's the big issue here is why the pilot only thought he had burned 485 gallons mm. if he had flown the airplane for four hours. And I guess yeah. there was some issue with the accuracy of the fuel gauges. So that's why they couldn't be quite sure, I guess. Um, although, Nick, what do you think, uh, Nick Camacho, regarding that statement uh, that right, you know, the this accident flight, they did not visually inspect the uh, the fuel uh, level? Yeah. Um, I so I don't know. I don't know how they operate their organization mm-hmm. um, and how they approach flights, right? But so all of this is in the scope of. My experience with a similar airplane, but a different type, right? Mm-hmm. Our our airplane um, is old, and we have, on multiple occasions, we've had to deal with uh, fuel leaks, and so it's um, it's not uncommon to have a fuel leak. And when you have eight hundred gallons of fuel on board, um, it's pretty easy for a minor fuel leak to to have a significant impact. Uh, but also we, um, one thing that we have to work, one thing that's working against us is our airplane is stored outside. And, uh, this sounds crazy. And we actually thought people were stealing gas from us at one point, but, uh, the C-47 has four fuel tanks. It sounds like similar to the B-25, four fuel tanks in the wings. Um, and they're aluminum tanks inside the aluminum wings. And, uh, our airplane in the summer when it's sitting outside, what I think what we've calculated now is that we evaporate off between like 15 and 30 gallons of gas a week. So if you don't fly the airplane, like it, it's significant enough for us that we have, we now have a fuel storage solution. We have a fuel trailer that we, uh, if we're not going to fly the airplane for a month or a couple of months, we drain all the fuel out of it. And then we have this fuel trailer that we can, you know, store in the shade or manage that. And so, um, just based on that experience alone, um, I I just, man, I just think it's a valuable check to, uh, look in the tank and there's, you know, there's some, so it's a commonly held belief that, aircraft fuel gauges only have to be correct to zero. And there's, you know, huge arguments about that. Yeah, I've heard that over and over, but that's not true, yeah. is it? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it's, uh, it's also pretty common to have, um, poorly calibrated fuel gauges or, uh, fuel gauges that you don't trust. So th- you just have to, and especially in old airplanes, right? You just have to be really diligent about it. So like in, in our case, in our airplane, we check fuel and oil, right? We check the fuel and the oil, um, before every flight. And so that's check. That's like check one. And then our first cross check is, um, all of our fuel gauges work to the best of our knowledge. Um, and then beyond that, we've added a fuel totalizer to the airplane. So, um, you know, in any one of those things, it's it's hard to just account on it being perfect, right? Like the fuel totalizer, uh, we fl- when we flew the airplane from Wichita to Maryland, I think it was maybe six or six and a half hours, and we burned um, 
nearly 600 gallons of gas. And that freaking fuel totalizer was accurate to one and a half gallons, which is hard for me to, it's like hard for me to imagine. If I wasn't there, I wouldn't believe it. Um, but it's a really cool piece of equipment. But if you don't, it's just like everything else in aviation, right? If you don't give it the right information, it doesn't do you a lot of good to know how much fuel you burn if you don't know how much fuel you have on board. Um, and it's the same thing with uh, your fuel gauges. Um, if you know you put 100 gallons or 600 gallons of gas in the airplane, but you have a fuel leak or you have, um, you know, these various issues, um, it's the fuel gauge is only as good as uh, the information that you have to work with it. So uh, I'm surprised that they were not checking the gas, I guess is my TLDR comment for that whole yeah. statement. And uh, our audience, Anthony Voigt, um, says, how well does the storage trailer work? Does it require some sort of stabilizer for keeping the fuel? No, we don't store it that long. Um, and Avgas is uh, Avgas is generally more stable than like auto fuel. So like if you leave auto fuel sitting for a few months, uh, you have more issues um, than you do with Avgas. It, uh, it's not uncommon for Avgas to be much older just because a lot of people don't fly very often in general aviation. So like it's totally plausible that that guys are filling up their airplane once a year, flying it a handful of times. So you still have gas in it that could be a year old. So, um, maybe not quite as hydroscopic as, uh, a, or auto fuel. Right. Okay. Did I use the right term? <laughs> These warbirds don't have fuel compensators. I don't know what a fuel compensator is. <laughs> Obviously you don't have them. <laughs> Appar apparently we don't have them. What kind of a and is he? <laughs> Listen, what kind of AMP is he? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's rude. That's a really rude. One. A lovable one. Yes, for sure. Um, okay. Let's, uh, let's end the news by uh, going directly to H. And uh, that is um, uh, a touching story. Um this is from uh, Paddle Your Own Canoe, and uh, the uh, title of this is Kaya's Last Flight. Um, and uh, I'm going to play um, the uh, video, and uh, there is some, uh, what do they call it? Um, Commentary? No, what, what is it when you throw up? Uh, I'm so not throw up like, uh, but, um, uh, CC, what is that called? The closed captioning, whatever. <laughs> there are some titling. There's some, there's some words on the video. There we go. Because the, uh, the PA that's Audio. being made, uh, is not super clear. So, um, we will, uh, I'll probably read what the, uh, pilot said after we play this video. Wow. I need to take a break, don't I? Okay, here we go. We have a special guest on today's flight. Kaya is a German Shepherd service dog who's been with her handler Cole since 2014. She was specifically trained to help veterans cope with mental health issues. She was the inspiration for the Pause Act, which is a federal law that allows to be the prime service dog for veterans with post-traumatic stress, which was signed into law in 2021. 
lobbying for the Pilots Act and traveling with Colt. Kaya has flown on Southwest over 250 times oh, out of her 320 flights she's been on. Sadly, Kaya was recently diagnosed with an untreatable cancer, so we have the solemn honor of taking her on what will be her last flight. As she goes home to rest where she was born and first met Colt. If you have the opportunity and feel so inclined, feel free to search for her story and pay her a visit when we arrive in Dallas to show her some love. On behalf of Southwest Airlines, Two veterans up front. We thank both Kai and Cole, the Marine Corps veteran, for their service. And you'll have to watch the video, which we'll have in the uh, linked in the show notes. Um, this German Shepherd, um, for almost the entire uh, PA, uh, was just resting her head on this um this pelt of, or yeah f- fluffy um mat or whatever on the on the floor in front of one of the it looks like it, one of the bulkhead seats um and uh, probably just uh, right there and between the legs of her uh master um cole and uh she didn't bat an eye until everybody started applauding and <laughs> she's like starting to look up like what what's going on why, why are people making noise with their hands um but uh, just a a very touching story and i guess it was pretty clear um uh, the uh, uh the pa audio. being made the audio uh that the um that she had been in service for what almost uh, eight years yeah something like that and and had flown uh, 250 of those flights on Southwest uh, out of 320, and uh, that she was just diagnosed with cancer. And uh, so, uh, very touching. And, uh, you know, we, we all love dogs here on the APG, at least the APG crew. And uh, I know many of you out there also kind of share that same, uh, that same uh, feeling about uh, animals, pets in general. And uh, it's just sad. But uh, anyway, too bad that Rick wasn't with us today because uh, he's got a, a bunch of dogs just like that that he um, owns and uh, takes care of and is a foster parent for he and his wife, his, uh, his partner. And uh, anyway, um, what do you think, guys? Nick, did it, did it break you up very enough where you can continue to talk? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very touching. Yeah. Uh, anything like that's going to uh, you know, be very emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me in particular, but uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely lovely to see. What a sweet looking dog as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. You're a dog owner as well, uh, Camacho. Yep. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Well, let's not dwell on that and uh, we'll move right to the getting to know a segment. We're going to uh, play that as soon as I can find it right here. Okay. It's that time of the show where we get to know what's been going on with uh, various crew members that are here today. Uh, And we're going to start with uh, Nick Camacho, because I believe you'll be leaving us after this and uh, let us continue on. So uh, what's been happening? Uh, Not much. I uh, Let's see. Last weekend, I guess, I got up in the Debonair and had a... uh, quick flight before uh it goes down for the annual 
the be- at the end of this month, basically. So, um, and I had to get that done last week because I uh, was traveling out to work in California this week. So, uh, flew from Wichita to California on Thursday. The big news for me is that uh, United Express has uh, altered its um, operation. So I now was on uh, Embraer 175s Woo-hoo. from Wichita to Denver. Yeah, oh, you're Denver missing that CRJ 200, aren't you? Yeah, and so you know it was uh, it, it was kind of a it's kind of a crapshoot going from Wichita to Denver because they fly. Uh, um. They sometimes flew CRJs. I think they sometimes flew three uh, nineteens or the smaller seven thirty sevens. Um, so you could you could get a like a nice airplane, or you could get a CRJ. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was always a CRJ two hundred from Denver to Slow, which is a three hour flight in that tiny little airplane. Um, so it was uh, it was exciting to fly on the. Uh, Embraer 175, which is still a regional jet, but it's uh, a little more modern. Um, I can hear the PA announcements, I, or I can comprehend the PA announcements. They don't just sound like Watch the teacher and <laughs> the teacher and peanuts. We did have a, an interesting situation uh, leaving Wichita. They got the airplane all boarded up, and we we're getting ready to go. And the captain came on and said, um, yeah, so we had, uh, there was some maintenance done on the airplane. The maintenance is all completed. We're just, uh, we're waiting on approval from the manufacturer, from the engineering department of the manufacturer for the repair that was made. Um, which I thought was a little weird that they were just saying like, uh, Hey, we did a thing to the airplane and and now we're trying to get it approved. Um, and I, I sent that to a couple of people, you know, and captain Nick made the comment, like, he's just trying to keep you informed, which I, I agree. And I do appreciate that. Um, but I've just heard, uh, you know, I've heard stories of like on the GA side, uh, FISDOs, um, keeping it generic, I guess, you know, like FISDOs, somebody applying for an approval on a GA airplane for an alteration. And the FISDO uh, says, well, I'll, uh, let me come out and look at it. And they say, well, we've, we've already done the work. Oh, and the FISDO, FISDO doesn't appreciate that, but there's nothing illegal about that, right? You just have to return the airplane to the way it was previously. So uh, I thought that was interesting. And, and it was more, I think, Jeff, you made the comment that it's more likely that it's a, a uh, pre-prescribed action, I guess, is maybe how you, I don't remember how you phrased it, but you basically said like probably something that's happened in the past and they've just got to get the, like the physical sign off from the manufacturer. And the only reason I keep saying that is because <laughs> the manufacturer obviously is in Brazil. Yeah. So um, having like a plane full of people waiting on that communication uh, seemed a little dodgy, but yeah. they got it squared away in a, in a, in a, much more timely manner than I actually expected. Maybe, it to maybe he, you know, in his effort to, you know, make sure they were transparent and communicated well with the passengers, maybe he used, didn't phrase it correctly. And it made it sound like, oh, they, we just did something. And now we're seeking the approval from the manufacturer that it was okay what we did. But I think what he probably meant, it was, I'm sure it was already approved and they just had to get the darn 
piece of paper from, you know, the blessing from the company before they yeah. could leave. And and that's, and I mentioned also in our communication with uh, uh, the crew here that sometimes the maintenance action takes less time. And many times that this happens, the, the actual maintenance occurring to the aircraft uh, takes less time than the actual signing off all the paperwork, all the dotting the I's and crossing the T's for, because the FAA is very, very particular about making sure that everything was done and documented properly. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and it's, it, it only gets worse, right? As you go downhill, as they say, stuff rolls downhill. Mm -hmm. So at least the airline has the weight of a giant corporation behind it when it goes to the FAA mm -hmm. compared to some of the interactions, uh, I, or people I know have had, you know, as a small person who owns one airplane trying mm -hmm. to get something approved and the FAA is like, yeah, we'll get to that when we get to that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different um, world, I guess. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, after that, it was smooth sailing. The weather was nice. It was a nice flight. Much more comfortable uh, airplane, right? Yeah. Sam makes a comment about uh, the ATR. So I don't. I never flew on an ATR, but the Embraer 120. When I moved out to California for college, the uh, the way for me to get home or like to get back and forth was um, Wichita to Denver and whatever. Denver to LA, both of those are probably like 737s. And then uh, LA to slow in an Embraer. And I remember it was like an hour 10. It was maybe like an hour 10 minute flight or something, or maybe an hour flight in the Embraer. And I remember it was a huge deal when they upgraded that route from a Embraer 120 to a CRJ 200, mm -hmm. which that turned it into like a 36 minute flight. Just so that people uh, who are new to the show understand uh, what what is slow. Oh, I'm sorry. Gosh. <laughs> Slow is short for San Luis Obispo. And Jeff literally just made the comment before we started today <laughs> about how people don't understand when I say that. But San Luis Obispo is the town, the city or town in, in California that I work in. Well, and it's also where I went to school. So, um, yeah. And the Embraer 120 is twin engine, turboprop airplane, not too dissimilar from like a Dash 8. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So I, I guess what I'm saying is, Trending in the right direction here, right? Yeah. Like I'm on pace to, by the end of my lifetime, be able to get on like a 787 in Wichita and go directly to slow. <laughs> <laughs> you can hmm. dream. <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to happen. Rick will pick him up in a 747 <laughs> and take him. Yeah. Liz is saying that Rick will uh, drop by in a 747 and pick you up. Oh, Rick will drop by in a 747. He just probably won't take me to won't take me to San Luis Obispo. No, he's going to go right into slow. He'll yeah, take me he to will. wherever he takes that. <laughs> I was, Riverside. Uh, Liz was saying well, people might get confused because when we introduce you, we say low and slow pilot. I guess we should say low and slow in slow. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, is that your boss? <laughs> no, okay. I, I just keep looking at who's. I just keep looking at who's pulling in. Yeah. Because um, I'm, I'm waiting for someone to come like busting into the conference. Yeah. I'm like, what, who are you talking to? Yeah. Anyway. Well, thanks for showing yeah, up. Yeah, thanks for showing up for the show uh, and taking yep. time out from your uh, busy work day. I know it's Saturday, but hey, some people have to work on the weekends, like yep. Nick Camacho. Pilot. Um, uh, and it looks like I've disappointed Liz. I'm sorry, Liz. Uh-oh. Okay, I my still CRJ love him. Uh, I still love you. Yeah, <laughs> she, she said she still loves you. 
all right. Well, we're going to go. Anything else before you uh, part ways with Um, us? I don't think so. I'm, I'm in California for a week and a half. So depending on when the next show is, I, you may or may not see me. Okay. I guess it's well, hopefully we'll keep the fingers crossed uh, that it works out well for you. If not, uh, then we'll see you on the one after that. And you'll have a lot more to talk about. Sounds good. Thanks guys. Thanks Nick. Yep. See ya. See ya. Cheers, Nick. Okay. Speaking of Nick, Nick Nick Anderson, Captain Nick, uh, how have you been, sir? Uh, Very well. Thank you very much indeed, Jeff. Uh, uh, Quite a reasonable break, really, since uh, the last show gave me a chance to do a plain tale I have been sort of waiting to do for a while, but it's it's not a, a simple uh, one to research. So um, uh, that's today's uh, plain tale. So uh, I appreciated having a few extra days uh, off to prep that. That was that. I was did that just perfect. For you. That's very, very kind. <laughs> uh, and of course, we're going to find out all about uh, your trip in the box, uh, your days in the box. Poor you. Mm-hmm. I know how that feels. So uh, a huge sympathy you for miss it, you. Don't you? Oh, <laughs> yeah, like a hole in the head. About <laughs> um, the only thing aviation-related thing I've done this week was to uh, give a talk um, on my days in the Phantom to uh, a, a group of um, enthusiasts in Guildford, um, and uh, that's really been it. Uh, my darling wife is away for the weekend at some fancy hotel, Um she is a uh, a needlewoman. She's not allowed. She says that's sexist. You can't call us needlewomen. So I said, "Well, what are you?" She said, "Well, we're sewers, and uh, that's spelt the same as a sewer." So, <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, anyway, she's up at some hotel learning how to do a special kind of um, patchwork with a bunch of other. Uh, uh, lady sewers um so uh she's having fun i've got all three dogs to look after and it's um feeding time so if you know how accurate a dog's stomach clock is oh, yeah. you'll realize that i'm being hassled here so i just i'm gonna say i'm gonna leave it to you and blank myself out while you chat while i go and feed the dogs if that's all right oh yeah for sure Back great back in a minute okay Oh, unless you want me to talk about quickly the uh, artwork, art. yeah, sure. Uh, we could do that uh, after you get back, if you'd like, or uh, or before. Uh, no, I'm, I may stretch into your okay. uh, coffee bar. Uh, so we, we had a story last week about uh, <laughs> putting footballs inside the cargo head, and a captain who was uh, a bit, perhaps a bit overly worried about whether these footballs were going to burst as he. Uh, climbed his aircraft due to the pressure change um and uh of course it <laughs> gave rise to the title ball buster that uh, was a good one i thought and so i needed to find some way to illustrate that that the background of that picture is actually a cargo hold you can't see much of it because i filled it full of um footballs uh and of course uh, what we've got here is uh what do you call this in the states Football is that what you football. call it? Yeah, foosball. Yeah. All right, uh, a, a tabletop football game, and we've got a, a particular player who's going to 
take a free kick and in front of him is a wall of players all guarding their essentials. So they obviously don't want <laughs> the ball. Yeah. Anything being busted. They don't want so anybody. that yeah. was the theme of uh, Good one. Uh, the artwork. And uh, if anyone was looking for the show title, you just have to look at the uh, scoring blocks at the, the back yeah. to see uh, five, the five, number. six there. Where now? I, I tried to find it and I, I couldn't. Well, it goes one, two, three, four. The the blocks at the back are over the goal. Oh, okay. I at the back of the table, one, two, three, okay. four, five, five, six, seven, ah, eight, nine, ten. Nice. There you go. Oh, and uh, and I I found a really good uh, energetic uh, football player to take the free kick. Yeah, I thought it was a little bit different than the uh, more more realistic looking than all the other foosball players <laughs> yeah, yes. on the board. The poor APG players that look like they're very worried. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. All right. Yeah. Uh, uh, Steph tells me she's going to get one of these tables in her games room. So uh, mm -hmm. next time we're down there. Very nice. I guess foosball, uh, that must be from the German. Is that is that kind of a German word? Sounds like it. I guess like we it. we don't call it, we just call it sort of tabletop soccer or tabletop right. football here in the That's UK. I, I think you're probably right. It probably is a continental thing. Don't know, right. perhaps Marcus or... Well, very good. Well, get to Stephen those dogs before they say. eat, gnaw your arm or leg, leg off. off. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Catch you after the coffee bar. Okay. All right, so it's just me, and uh, we're going to get you caught up on what I've been doing. And the reason, uh, as Mick, as Mick, as Nick mentions, uh, the reason why it's been so long since we've uh, uh, had a show is because uh, I was in training. I mentioned that on the last show that I was going to be uh, in recurrent training, and it's my last time in that stupid box. And that training center facility, and you know, I thought maybe I'd get I, I'd get a little emotional and teary eyed, you know, walking nope. on the the building, the bridges between the buildings and stuff like that. And I went, nope, don't feel bad at all. Never having you know, to return to this this place with all these evil people evaluating your every move in the simulator. Uh, so uh, yeah, if, if I'm pretty sure now, I, I'm still going to be in the zone for uh, another recurrent training cycle, but I'm pretty positive that I am just not going to make it. Uh, hopefully, maybe even having maybe retiring early, so I don't have to do this again. So that's it. I'm making the statement now. That was my last recurrent training. And um, Liz, can you show the um, uh, the no, uh, the the picture of Brent and oh yeah, uh -huh. there we go. I took I snapped a photo, a selfie with uh, First Officer Brent and I. Uh, we did the recurrent training together, and the, and the box is behind us there, the seven one seven two hundred, and uh, that was that evil torture machine that we uh, spent four hours uh, for the last uh, couple of days, Thursday and Friday. And uh, we did well and uh, got through it. And uh, very soon, that gentleman there uh, standing next to me, behind me, uh, will be making another visit to the training center in that evil box because he's upgrading to captain. So he'll have to spend about eight periods, I think, in, the, in that simulator box or one of the three that we have. Um, 
Oh, iHall Boxes is asking, do I get to pick who I'm training with? Well, if you're senior, as both Brent and I are, uh, we can do our best to request uh, training. Uh, he went in his early, so it's like a three-month window for training. There's like your, your the middle month is your, your zone month or whatever they call it. Uh, the, uh, the first month is your early month and your, and the last month, the third month is your must go, or I think they call it their grace, the grace period or grace month. Um, so I ended up pushing mine to the last month that I could possibly go. And Brent, this was his first month of availability. So he was able to request training in his early month. And so it worked out. Interesting comment from Robert. Uh, Robert Hoffman there says, I'm working for such a company now, maintaining those evil torturing devices. Ugh. Well, God bless you, Robert. Um, we do appreciate actually those things working well because we don't want to spend any more time than we need to in there. And there are times when the box, the simulator kind of doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And if it's, if it's such a bad problem that sometimes they basically cancel the period and say, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to come back on another day and finish up. So that uh, must be fun. That's not fun at all. No. Um, anywho, um, what I meant to do was first talk about if, if you listen to episode 556, uh, you'll note in the audio only podcast and most of you out there listening or, uh, part of the show or yeah, listening to the show. Uh, are listening via the audio podcast. And you'll notice that every time I mention my adventure with Armando in Charlotte, uh, there's a beeping sound. I'm censoring something because I realized, or people kind of informed me after uh, we did the last show, that I kept referring to Armando's airplane as a super cub. My mistake, it's not a super cub, it's a super cruiser. And we're showing right now on the video, a picture, and again, in the show notes, uh, of the, uh, let's show the first one. Mm -hmm. The, uh, that's the super cub. And then mm -hmm. the next one is the super cruiser. Now, I don't know about you, but they look really, really similar. I guess there's difference in when they were made and also the size of the engines, the super cub being the more, uh, modern version of the, um, cub and, uh, bigger engines. And this was built in, this is one of the first super cruisers, I think, uh, built in 1946. I think the super cubs started coming uh, or being manufactured in uh, 49, and then after. And I think I, I don't think they're still. I don't think they're still being made, but uh, maybe they are. I don't know. But I know I've seen some like 90, 1990 something vert models of the super cub. So. Uh, they were manufacturing them at least until the 90s. And per, as I said, perhaps... The, the Super Cub or the Super Cruiser? The Super Cub, not okay. the Super Cruiser. I think the Super Cruiser was only around for like 46 through 49. Again, you can oh, correct so me really if I'm wrong. it really is a classic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it looks very similar to me. So nice. I made I made a mistake, so I tried to just beep out, bleep out every time I said Super Cub. I, what I should I have done you were was swearing. Yeah, uh, somebody or a few people kind of said, "Hey, uh, why are you bleeping out?" You know the the cub uh, part of the name, and and none, so now you know why. Um, I, I meant to record myself saying cruiser, 
and then just inserting it every time I said super cruiser. (laughs) But I ran out of time because I had to get, I had to get, uh, to get this thing published and, get and start books. getting in the books and studying for this, um, this simulator torture, this delightful training, this session. delightful training event. Yes. Okay. Uh, so now that we've, uh, uh, made a correction to my reference of the, uh, airplane that I flew with, uh, it was a great time, really enjoyed my flight with, uh, Armando. Uh, well, I guess that was a couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, so now I'm so relieved that uh, training's over, and now I get to move on to regular line flying for the rest of my career. And wait uh, for your RV to come. And waiting for my RV to be delivered. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, this weekend, uh, after we record the show later today, I'll be singing at uh, my church, and then again, probably. Actually, I, I don't have to come in until about noon. Tomorrow, Liz, because uh, nice. uh, Jane, our choir director, is in Florida, and uh, so there's another group that's kind of doing the earlier masses that I normally nice. sing at. So I get to sleep more in. Relaxing, yeah. yeah. Good. So that's it for me. Uh, back out on uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, Friday. So two two day trips next week. I'll be in Tallahassee on Tuesday, having lunch with uh, one of our APG community members who happens to be in our live audience right now. Uh, Ken Hayes, Hayes. and uh, anybody else out listening right now, uh, if you're in the Tallahassee area, kind of try to contact. I'll try to remember to send out a tweet to tell you where we're having lunch, and uh, you can come by and say hello. And you're in Dayton on uh, Thursday, yeah? And then Dayton on Thursday, yes. So that's my week ahead. And yeah, so that's about it for me. On fun time. the getting to know us segment. And now let's talk about coffee. Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. yeah. Love that Java, that coffee. Coffee fun. There's the some uh, mugs, coffee mugs that I had made uh, a while back. Um, yeah, it's your way to support the show financially if you have the resources to do so. A couple different ways to do it. One is the classic method. And since the last episode, we had a very generous donation from a Canadian Stuart Thompson. We are generous. Yes, you are a generous people, Liz. Um, and uh, he is in a different province than you. He's in the uh, Alberta province. That's correct. Yeah, okay. And again, thank you, Stuart, for, I guess he was having some issues uh, being a, yeah, patron. a patron. I guess those Canadian banks are, are, are causing problems with yeah, Patreon. We don't like sending our money down south. <laughs> you don't like sending your money to stinking people in the U.S. Anyway. Thank you, Stuart, for figuring out a way to send your stinking money to me. <laughs> uh, and uh, another way to uh, support the show is Patreon. And uh, since the last episode, a new producer, Wesley Haynes, is a patron now of our show. So if you want to join Wesley and all the other great people out there who contributed to the show, please head over to AirlinePilotGuide.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will, too. Thanks. Captain, 
Incoming message. Okay, we're going to start with this feedback from AJ. Uh, should I read the thing, his note to you, Liz? Or no, 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 no. no? Okay. Uh, so he sent uh, a little, a little love note to Liz, telling but her, "I love you, AJ." What a, she loves you, AJ. She says. Um, but uh, I'm going to start with the thing for Ooh, Captain I Jeff. The beer is being broken out there in this. Uh oh. Um, the uh, the beer is being. Introduced. Oh yeah. Well, it's definitely it's definitely beer o'clock now. It's okay, past beer five. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> All right. Uh, I would I'd have one with you as well, but I don't um, have any beer here. Oh, that's I a trick. To oh no. I know. Okay. Uh, apropos of nothing else, Captain Jeff, I reside relatively close to Studio One A. I believe I'm about forty-five seconds from Horsetown, over near the dry seashell flatlands and the less Yeehaw! than ankle-deep river crossing. <laughs> and I'm going. What? Well, Horsetown. Uh-huh. Uh, there's there's another um, show, another aviation podcast out there uh, that uh, uses all these obscure references to places and that nobody understands really. Uh, so he lives, uh, near Shalliford and Sandy Plains road. I know where that is actually. He says, sorry, I can't break the OB habit, the opposing bases that show where they do all these crazy things. He said, would love to buy you a beer and or a burger or pick your brain about diving into the world of 121 or 135 flying. I'm thinking about a career change, only slightly compelled by a few friends on your side of the cockpit door and a few dogs as well. Uh-oh, must be somebody at your Sorry door, Captain Nick. <laughs> no problem. Um, let's see, a couple of which work for the Acme airline also. I'm an instructed uh, instrument rated. What, what am I saying? I'm an, an instrument rated private pilot now, but have an unmitigable, 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 unmitigable. <laughs> Help me out, Liz. You're not saying anything. Inmitigable. Okay. Inmitigable. Inmitigable. Wow. Maybe I should read these things before I do the show. Uh, always helps. Unmitigatable. That works. Yeah, that's good. Passion for aviation. And he has a... Hey, a, he's, in, he's in the chat. He has a great passion for aviation. <laughs> and um, considering that leap into the pro circuit. Wow. I'm not going to take that out either. All that is going to stay in. I'm not yeah. uh, fixing it in post. He says, but I digress. I'm a new patron of the show, but one of the reverse ones. I know you all have done a great service over the past but years. Getting, what does a reverse patron I, take money out of the show, does he? Oh, that's no good. How can you? <laughs> I didn't know you could do that. I don't know. Okay. Um, well, give it back, please, AJ. Um, okay. Uh, I know y'all have done a great service over the past years getting RH and AG up and started in the podcasting world, and I've gotten to know yeah, them that well enough. that was a enough. big mistake. I know. <laughs> Little do we know what a huge mistake that would be. Uh, let's see. And I've gotten to know them well enough that they recently invited me for a tour of the new tower at the Mythical Triad. I highly recommend it if you can follow the breadcrumbs and find your way there. Way cool stuff to see. I've caught a long-haul case of OB syndrome, but I still have a few, read 300-ish episodes of APG to go, so I'm safe for another few days, at least on that score. Okay. 
I'm one of the reverse patrons because, oh, he's going to explain this now. I'm one of the reverse patrons because I heard about and became interested in your show, mostly due to Captain Nick's artful and surgical verbal sniping. (laughs) (laughs) He says, ask Nick, he'll explain what sniping means. I know what sniping means. Yeah, very good. Uh, On the OB show and I got hooked. I figured after all you've done for them, the least I could do would be to patronize your conglomerate to try to pay a little back in their honor. I have become absolutely enthralled with the old pilot's plane tales along the way. What a, what a lovely chap. I like, changed my mind. I he's like in the him. chat. <laughs> yeah, he's in the chat, Liz says. Um, oh, wow. Brilliant. Yeah. So basically what he's saying here is that he's not here for me or anybody else, but the plane tales. Yeah, only. Yeah. It's all part of the same thing, Uh, isn't it? I mean, Mm, we're all one and all, (laughs) all for one. All for one and one for all. Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, Let's see. I The six stooges. The six stooges, Liz adds. (laughs) Uh, I wanted to share a fun, funny story that your crew might get a giggle from, or at least a mindful, I've been there nod this feedback was originally written for that other mythical show meaning the names were changed to protect the guilty so feel free to use the real names for airports and airspaces in brackets or keep it a bit of a secret and see if your compatriots can ascertain their true location captain nick might get a free pass on account of not being from around there insert a yeehaw here oh i should have been ready for that yeehaw! like us cowboys Either way, I hope you will enjoy my own little plain tale entitled Hell of a Day to Fly. All right. And I do remember uh, AJ, by the way, who are is should in Nick our be reading this plain tale? Uh, why should Nick be reading this? I don't know. It's his own little plain tale. I thought maybe he'd like to read the other guy's plain tale. Uh, well, I don't know. Nick, would you? Liz is thinking because I don't it's a, have an American accent. Uh, All right. Okay. Okay. Um, I was going to say, AJ. Um, that and I want to drink my beer. I heard <laughs> <laughs> order. Um, I'll uh, what, what was I saying? Oh, I heard this uh, on opposing bases when you sent in this feedback to weeks them. ago, a lot more than many more than much more than weeks ago, Liz. It was months ago, I think. Oh, yeah, okay, here we go. Um, hell of a day to fly. I thought you aviation aficionados might get a chuckle on possibly the worst first flying experience ever for not one friend, but two new to aviation and a third on his second flight ever. And the best part is it's all my fault. This is a two part feedback because it's really two stories in one. Feel free to break it up or read it all as one and extend your show to four hours. Hmm. I'm not sure we want to do that. We'll see how this goes. Uh, Part one, the non-emergency emergency. For a while, I've been talking about taking a few work friends up for their first flight in a GA aircraft, but finally made good on my threat a couple of months ago. We decided to go for a $100 hamburger at a neat little spot. And by little, I mean tiny, like 2,400 foot grass strip, uh, Barnstormers Airfield, uh, Peach State Aerodrome GA2. Okay, I... Either of those, I have no idea where that is, uh, with a great restaurant. Uh, One friend, we'll call him Juliet Echo, Justin E., uh, met me at my home home airport, Guntown Delta, which is McCullum Airport. That's up in uh, Cobb County. I know where that is. 
on the north side of the rectangular Bravo, which is the uh, Atlanta uh, Bravo airspace. Our plan was to fly the Club 182RG down to the Roundy Round Racetrack Airport, Terra Field, which is right next to the uh, uh, Atlanta Speedway, to the southeast of uh, Atlanta, uh, just south of the rectangular Bravo. Pick up our other two friends, Mike Bravo and Charlie Foxtrot, then continue to Barnstormers Airfield, another 12 nautical miles south. We pre-flighted the airplane with J.E. asking seemingly unending questions about the airplane and aviation in general. He was very excited for his first flight, second ever flight, but first in a GA plane. It was a beautiful day with scattered clouds, plenty high enough for our short flight. We loaded up and went through all the pre-takeoff motions and ablutions. Um, after takeoff and in the initial climb, I told him to watch out the window so he could see the wheel disappear as I retracted the gear. Normally, in the 182RG, that stands for retractable gear. They fall off. Yes, they do. Sometimes. <laughs> oh, look, the wheels to spin. Yeah, they're supposed to do that. <laughs> Normally, in the 182RG, when you flip the gear lever, you are rewarded with a whine from the hydraulic pump that concludes with a satisfying double thunk as the gear locks in the fully retracted position. On this day, however, the airplane was not in the mood to cooperate. I looked out my window as I flipped the gear lever up and was rewarded with crickets. No click, no whine, no satisfying kathunk. I went through a very brief malfunction check, cycling the gear lever one more time after confirming the appropriate circuit breaker was not tripped, but to no avail. I told Juliet Echo that I guess he won't get to see the wheel disappear. After briefly explaining the issue, he asked me, what does that mean? I responded, it means we're going to land and take another airplane. I was reminded of episode OB177.5, in which Bravo Foxtrot told his story of a partial power emergency landing in a field. His young passenger asked if landing in a field was normal. He answered his first-time passenger with, yes, of course it's normal, with other thoughts on his mind. I had a similar thought there, or here, uh, make it seem like no big deal, and pray I'm not lying laugh out loud. The light green gear down and locked light stayed eliminated. And I never saw the left main wheel move, but there's always that tiny doubt in the back of the mind that makes you wonder just how this landing will turn out. Just as my fingertip touched the push to talk on the yoke to perform or inform the tower, we would be returning. I heard Guntown Tower key up and tell us to switch to the tiny Air Force base Dobbins Air Reserve Base uh, over there in Cobb County uh, to the to the Air Force Base Tower to the south frequency and wished us a good flight. I responded that we had a gear issue and would like to uh, would need to land. He immediately made room in the pattern for us, and as we approached midfield downwind, the tower told us that our gear appeared to be down and looked correct. I was surprised at the relief I felt when he said this. I didn't realize how concerned I was up to that point. We continued to an anticlimactic, anticlimactic read normal, regardless of extra clenched muscles I didn't know I had landing, parked the airplane and transferred all of our stuff to our older Club 182, which has the gear down and welded. So it's not an attractable <laughs> gear version. Um, he said, I would love to hear y'all's response to my question below. Also, it was originally intended for the response from ATC's POV, 
hence written point originally. Of view. Oh, point of view. Thank you. Point hence view, written yeah. uh, originally for OB, but I would be happy to hear from some seasoned GA and 121 pilots as well. But you're not going to get any seasoned GA pilots to uh, comment on it, uh, AJ, because they're they're absent. just to uh, part 121 and, well, Nick, I don't know if you, you're not even a part 121 pilot, are you? Well, I'm no, I'm no kind no. of a pilot right I know, but now. Would you but consider yourself when you were actively flying? In my in my early years, yeah, of course. Well, that's that's all I did. I, I worked at a light airfield and flew Cessnas. Okay, cool. So, um, uh, yeah, you want to comment? Uh, well, his question says, uh, "Should I have yep. declared an emergency in this case?" I feel like I got the point across, and Tower knew the situation, but I would love to hear your thoughts. And I would like to start by saying I was taking off in a MD-88 from Atlanta International Airport uh, one day, and I reached over to put the gear up, and or, or was I flying? I guess I was flying, and I uh, responded to my first officer's positive rate with gear up. He went to move the gear handle up, and I think the gear handle... I don't remember now if the gear handle came up and the gear didn't or if the gear handle wouldn't come up at all. But anyway, the gear was uh, stuck in the down and locked positions and position. And if you're going to have a situation where the gear is stuck in one in one way or another, I think 99.9% of us would probably prefer the down and locked, the green light uh, condition. And so for me, I told air traffic control that we wanted to, I guess it must've been the first officer's leg because I was talking on the radio. I said, Hey, uh, we're going to stay with you and we'd like to, uh, return for a landing because, uh, we're having a problem with our gear. And he said, would you like to declare an emergency? And I said, Nope, there's no need to, we're in a normal situation. So we just want to get resequenced and get it back on the ground because we're going to burn a lot of gas if we continue our flight with the gear extended. And it's going to be noisy, and uh, it would be frowned upon if we had done that. So we came back around, landed, and uh, an emergency was not declared. What's your take on that, Captain Nick? Well, I, I agree with you entirely, Jeff. And in this case, I don't think uh, you would probably need to declare an emergency. Um, if you've tried to raise the gear and it hasn't gone up, and you've put the lever back down again, and you've still got green lights indicating your gear is down and locked, I might even have said you'd be, you know, you'd be okay probably to complete your flight as if you <laughs> just leave the gear down, mm-hmm. complete your flight, uh, do your, go and get your burger, bring it back, and then say, by the way, I couldn't get the gear up after takeoff, so I left it down. Oh. Um, would there uh, be a, a would there be a significant difference in fuel burn and all that kind of stuff, or not? Well, he's only on a short flight. These these airports are only a few miles apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think if you're uncertain, the best thing to do is to uh, keep take it back to where it came from and where all the engineering facilities are. Uh, you don't really want to have a problem with that gear when you're on a strange airfield without any decent maintenance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so good, yeah, okay decision. Good decision to. Uh, land back and do you need to clear an emergency well luckily in the united kingdom or in europe uh, we have the ability to put out a pan pan call 
Uh, so that's just, this is the perfect situation mm -hmm. really for a pan pan call, though it says no real threat to life uh, in your situation, but um, you would like uh, to get it on the ground uh, as quickly as possible, perhaps, you know, and have a little bit of priority. You want to concentrate on the approach, you can make sure it's nicely set up. You don't want to put any extra strain on the gear just in case something has unlocked and failed to properly engage again. Um, so, yeah, I would put out a pan pan call. Uh, you, in America, there only seems to be one kind of an emergency, and that's I'm declaring an emergency. So, yeah. And when I was in the Air Force, um, we had, I guess, an equivalent to Pan Pan. I don't know if they still do this or not, but we called it a, a precautionary. Yeah, um, precautionary landing. Yes, yeah. we we used to request the same sort of thing if we were chatting to ATC right. in the military yeah but in the since I've been in the uh, part 121 airline transport world um, there's no mention of precautionary at all it's just uh, an emergency declaration or not we do so. pan pans and maydays up here okay Liz well fine <laughs> just telling you <ya. laughs> I know she's saying that they do uh, pan pans and a uh, emergency. I mean, and maydays up there in uh, in Canada because they want to be because because you, you want to be just like those people over there on the other side of the pond. Yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Doing, doing right. <laughs> okay, uh, let's see. So, yeah, AJ, I, we both agree that you did the right thing. Um, and then part two. Shall we continue with part two, Liz? We could hold that for the next show if we want to get through some more stuff. Okay. Know, Why don't we, uh, AJ, you get to be featured again on our next show. We're going to take your uh, recommendation and uh, save your uh, part two for another episode. So thanks for sending it in. I'm glad you were here while we yeah. uh, talked about this. Uh, yeah. And and uh, next time you send him feedback, don't put on, put those really hard to say words for me. Like yeah. I'm mitigating. In unmitigable, um, I can't say. Moving it. on. Okay, moving on. Uh, feedback from Mazus. Uh, he says, if you're desperate, well, <laughs> if anybody knows me, they know <laughs> I'm desperate. Um, <laughs> between you, there is a huge amount of aviation experience. What are your favorite aircraft that you've flown? And he says, I'm guessing the L-1011 for Captain Jeff. Yeah, I'd have to say that's my favorite. And also the best and worst airports that you've flown into around the world. I'm guessing Lago, Lagos might feature on one of your lists. What do you think, Nick? What's your favorite? Uh, yeah, Lagos. Probably. That's your favorite? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm definitely, you know, I just love going to Lagos. Uh-huh. I've heard that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, another airport um, I liked going to um, was... Uh, Kai Tak uh, in Hong Kong, the old Hong Kong. But um, CLK, Chet Blackcock, uh, the new one. Excuse me? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> Do what with my what? what? <laughs> Chet Black, Lap, Chet Lap Cock. There you go. Um, okay. Anyway, uh, that, that was, uh, that was a, a nice airport. That was very modern, lovely airport. Everything worked and... Uh, it was just amongst a load of high hills, so you often got very bad turbulence. And, of course, JFK was really my favorite because 
you never had any problems with air traffic and oh, queues they're so to take nice off. There. And, oh, they're absolutely lovely. They're Especially so patient the patient with you. And uh, yeah, so complimentary and um, civilized. Uh, Make you feel there. right at home. Absolutely. Welcome to America. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's see. My, I really don't have a least favorite. Like uh, uh, Toronto. Oh yeah, Toronto. I hate that place, mainly because <laughs> of the people. Really. Right. Yeah. Um, no, just kidding. Uh, Toronto is not a Pearson is a nice airport to fly in and out of. Uh, but I can tell you that. Uh, one of my favorite airports and has nothing to do with the terminal or the facilities or anything else. It's the, the approach that it's been years since I've flown it and I miss it dearly. And I, it's one of my favorite aviation experiences, uh, experiences uh, of all. And that, that is the, um, our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Oh, National River. Airport. And when they're landing to the south and it's a nice day, they do the river visual approach. And uh, it's just the the best opportunity for us air, uh, airline transport drivers to actually feel like you're you're really flying. And uh, and when I say that, I mean not with your autopilot uh, uh, hooked up to the uh, you know the the thing that's built in the box to fly the uh, the 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 contours or the whatever of the river all the way in. It's hand fly that darn thing and feel like you're really flying and. It's just a, a very short uh, transition from coming in along the Potomac River to uh, making a sharp right turn and aligning yourself with the runway and landing. And most places, if you tried to do something like that, uh, you had been called into the chief pilot's office and asked to explain yourself why you were flying such an unstabilized approach at the last minute. But because it's our nation's capital and we have those great uh, congressmen, senators, and people in politics up there, uh, they kind of look the other way and say, it's okay. It's not that It's, it's not just that the one where you fly down the river and you go twice round the Washington Monument, and then you buzz the White House. Yes, and then that's you the do one. A, a, a quick wing over, a quick <laughs> and and scooch into the runway, yeah? Yeah, no. Uh, they, they frown on that. Uh, they, they prefer you to just stay right over the top of that, uh, Potomac river and not make any of those little circling approaches around excursions. Excursions. Oh, yeah. No. What a shame. Uh, but I guess, you know, if it's your last flight, you're about to retire, I guess you could do that and hope that yeah, they don't you fire don't mind a spending the next 20 years in a federate federal penitentiary. I hear they're very nice and they get three meals a day. They have yeah, like a gym do. workout facility. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure it's wonderful. Yeah. I think I'll I'll pass on that. Well, I, we don't fly to DC anyway anymore, at, oh. in, on my airplane, on my fleet. Anyway, so I, I'm I'm going to miss that. And the other, the other approach that I really missed, and, and people would say that you know you must be on drugs or something. Uh, the airport um, La, uh, LaGuardia, uh, a lot of people affectionately refer to it as La Garbage. Um, it's a <laughs> uh, it's I miss flying in to and out of, not necessarily the experience of actually being on the ground at this particular airport, but, you know, flying the expressway visual approach and some of those departures were pretty, uh, pretty interesting and uh, required a lot of attention to detail, uh, flying those uh, routes and speeds and headings and everything else. But uh, yeah, I kind of, I've kind of missed that as well. It's been years since I've been to LaGuardia. 
But anyway, that that's what I would say. And yes, uh, the 1011 is uh, my probably my favorite airplane that I've ever flown and uh, in the uh, airline world. And the 727, for sure. What a great jet that was. Nick, yourself, uh, I guess the 340 would have to be your favorite. Well, yeah. <laughs> In the yeah I world. did fly the 330, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, which was the twin-engine variant, more or less. Uh, and I never did like flying with less than four engines. Yeah. So, uh, Don't blame Yeah, me. the 340 was particularly the 600 variant, which had a, more power than you could shake a stick at. And it uh, was... Bigger and mightier, so that was that was a lovely airplane. And he says, on a completely different topic, I think most professionals have pet peeves about how their environment is pro- portrayed on the big screen. Do you have uh, particular aviation-themed movies that you love or hate? One that I'd particularly suggest not losing 92 minutes of your life on is Horizon Line, which I was duped into watching by a friend on a streaming platform that might be named for a river. Oh, maybe uh, Nile? No. Mississippi? No. Uh, Thames. Uh, Thames? Maybe so- in South America. Uh, yeah, maybe Amazon? Maybe that's yeah. what he's tra- referring to. I think. Yeah, I'm okay. sure he is. Highlights include a strange couple end up in a single-engine Cessna. Pilot dies. They fly through a storm. Guy has to climb out onto the wing mid-flight to sort out a what, fuel the, problem. The dead guy? That's <laughs> clever. <laughs> well, I think he means the uh, part the, of the couple, the non-pilot uh, that's oh, still okay. alive, oh. flies through a storm. But the oh thing that I really love about this is having to climb out onto the wing mid-flight to sort out a fuel problem. I mean, that's the way I normally sort out fuel problems. <laughs> yes. That guy in the B-25 should have done that. Yeah, yes, I'm not sure how it's going to do that, but there you go. I don't either. Uh, but as Liz just mentioned, maybe they should have done that on that B-25 and they wouldn't have crashed into the field. Yeah. Right out on the mm, Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, he says, I, uh, I can't tell you what happened after that because I think my brain gave up. <laughs> so, uh, thanks for the tip. Yeah, thanks to uh, Mazuz for the tip. Uh, we are not going to watch that movie. And he ends with Talons Douglas. Best wishes, Mazuz. Thank you, Maybe sir. Maybe one more and then plain tail. Jeff. Okay, one more then the plain tail from the control. Oh, we room. have to. Do we have a particular aviation theme movie we love or hate? Jeff? Oh, What's oh, yours? okay. Oh, we're 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 moving away from this too quickly. I yeah, think my sorry. favorite aviation theme movie, and I think probably for many people, is of course Airplane the movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. You. I know you guys love that. Mm -hmm. It's a bit like Blazing Saddles for me. You know, Mm -hmm. it's full of American humor. Oh, okay. In other words, not funny at all. Okay. (laughs) Um, What's your favorite? It's a bit uh, affordable. You know, it's a bit. (laughs) What's your favorite uh, British aviation theme movie? My favorite would be uh, the Dan Busters. Oh, that's probably there at number one. Uh, I. Um, I didn't think it was that funny, though, honestly. No, that's true. No, it wasn't that funny. Yeah, uh, particularly when all the guys keep blowing up. I know. Uh, that's very sad. Um, what else? Uh, I, I had a couple going around in my head, and now I've uh, I've forgotten them. Uh, that's a bit naughty, isn't it? Oh, well, we can uh, I didn't after. like um, 633 Squadron because that was, uh, you know, all made up. Uh what else? Uh, oh, um, 
Ice Station Zero. Do you remember that one? It wasn't an aviation theme, but it was really all about a submarine. Oh, but okay. uh, they had uh, they were supposedly being attacked by uh, Russian uh, bombers, uh, and uh, they were all phantoms. At least most of them were <laughs> phantoms <laughs> flying around in close formation as well. <laughs> oh God, what? And those are Russian bombers. Okay. Yeah, supposedly. Yeah, they just got some library footage of some phantoms, uh-huh. and I thought, cheapskates, that's <laughs> well, terrible. It's an airplane. Nobody yeah, will notice. How could you do that? Yeah. Sadly, probably most of the people that watched it didn't have any idea that there was no, anything you're quite right. wrong They with played that. the same clip, you know, once or twice the right way around, and then they inverted the film and did it all the way around. That's right, main man, Micah. That's exactly the one I was thinking of, 12 o'clock high. What a fabulous movie. Ice Station Zebra, yep. What a fabulous movie 12 o'clock high was. I love that one. That was great. I'd like to know, uh, Mike Hypers, I know it's going to take a while for him to respond to this, but uh, um, he is an amazing old movie buff. And, uh, well, old He's movie, an amazing old movie, movie buff. buff or, or an <laughs> old movie buff. <laughs> Both, watch actually. movies in the buff? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not saying, Liz, what, how he is attired when he watches movies, but... Um, <laughs> watches them in the buff. I, that's what Liz is possibly suggesting, uh, the control yes. room is, anyway. Um, but uh, what is your favorite aviation-themed movie? I'd li- really like to know the answer yeah. to that, because he watches... A lot. A oh, lot and reviews. And reviews uh, them all, as well, yeah. Which is... I, I love getting those because they're a bunch of movies I've never even heard of. Yeah. And what's what's the one that uh, Airplane was mostly patterned after? Um, Airport. N- no, no, no. No. It's it's a different uh, one. It? Um, zero. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, uh, zero. Zero hour or something like that? What is that? Uh, oh, okay. Shoot. Uh, Sam says the Blue Max. That was brilliant. Uh, and there's a great story about the stunt pilot uh, who flew under the bridge. Uh, and he didn't just fly under the big span. He had to do some passes uh, under one of the narrow spans as well. And uh, apparently uh, he had to do it many times because the producer wanted to look realistic. And that as he flew under, a bunch of sheep behind in the back of the shop ran away. So they keep having to herd these sheep into place and he would fly under and they'd release the sheep and they either wouldn't run away or they ran away too soon or things didn't work out. Anyway, he had to do it over and over and over again. He said the clearance was minute. (laughs) He had to keep (laughs) flying under this bridge. Yeah, but um, you're right. Uh, Blue Max was great. Uh, And the great Waldo Pepper. There's some fantastic flying sequences in that one. That's brilliant. Um, Mike answered our question about what inspired the uh, airplane, the movie zero hour is correct. And, but he's not told us what his favorite aviation themed movie is. Come on, Mike. All right. We're going to control room is directing us to, uh, do our <laughs> plane tale. And, uh, yeah, he can still, he can still let us know. He's just taking his time. You know, it's, it's a, an important question. He's thinking about it. And uh, in the meantime, while, while uh, Mike Kuypers is thinking about his favorite aviation movie, we're going to play the old pilot's plane tale. This week's episode, The Applegate Memorandum. The old pilot's plane tales. 
The Applegate Memorandum But the DC-10 was McDonnell Douglas's first commercial airliner project since the merger between McDonnell Aircraft Corporation and the Douglas Aircraft Company in 1967. It started life on the drawing boards as a four-engined, double-decked, wide-body airliner that could carry 550 passengers, but morphed into a single-deck, three-engined aircraft that could carry one passenger short of 400. In what was expected to be a knockout blow to the competing Lockheed L-1011, the president of American Airlines and James McDonnell of McDonnell Douglas announced American Airlines' intention to acquire the DC-10. With significant orders from American, United and from other airlines around the world, its future looked good. The DC-10 featured advanced avionics, optimised aerodynamics and delivered superior comfort for passengers and crew. Her operational capabilities filled an important niche and in many ways the DC-10 revolutionised the airline flying model. The aircraft could operate routes never thought of as workable and reach destinations previously considered financially impractical. The developers of the DC-10 crafted its design to meet the demands of the industry and its capabilities were never questioned. It was praised by pilots for its light handling and state-of-the-art guidance systems and its engineers appreciated its ease of maintenance. Regulations of the time prevented twin-engined aircraft from crossing the big oceans, but efficient trijets could compete, particularly on those routes that didn't have the capacity to warrant a gas-guzzling 747. In a huge fanfare of publicity, the DC-10 first flew in late 1970, but even as the aviation press was greeting this new widebody onto the stage, an engineer, Dan Applegate, had grave concerns. Dan didn't work for McDonnell Douglas, but for Convair, a division of General Dynamics, one of the subcontractors bought aboard to aid in the design and construction of this mighty jet. He was Convair's Director of Product Engineering, and his concerns centred around the design of the cargo doors and the construction of the cabin floor that was the base of the passenger cabin and therefore the roof of the cargo compartments. The DC-10 had been designed with cargo doors that opened outwards, as inward opening doors, although inherently safer, required some unusable space within the hole to accommodate the door. As a result, the need for a fail-safe design of locking pins to secure the door was vital. The doors originally had hydraulic actuators to secure these pins, a proven design used in both the DC-8 and DC-9, but McDonnell Douglas decided to use electric actuators, which gave a 28-pound, 12.7 kilo, weight saving per door. 
The change concerned the Convair engineers since the hydraulic actuators would behave differently as cabin pressure built up behind the door. If a hydraulic latch wasn't secured properly, it would smoothly slide open with only a small increase of cabin pressure. Although an open door in flight might well rip off, this would occur at a low altitude and without a large decompression shock, allowing a safe landing. In contrast, if the proposed electric latch failed to engage properly, it could fail violently and most likely at a higher altitude where a rapid decompression could dangerously affect the aircraft's structure. Applegate's objections to the new door latch were rebuffed, but Convair was asked to draft a failure mode and effect analysis, a FEMA, for the cargo doors. The FEMA concluded that there were nine possible failure sequences that could result in the destruction of the aircraft. There was a major problem with the door warning and locking pin system in that it could close and latch without being safely locked. The conclusion was that the door design was potentially dangerous and lacked a reliable fail-safe locking system. FAA regulations required it to be given femurs covering all systems critical to safety, but no mention was made of the door hazard prior to the certification of the DC-10. McDonnell Douglas subsequently stated that the door design was not implemented until all defects in the femur were removed. As the lead designer, McDonnell Douglas made itself entirely responsible for the certification of the aircraft and they forbade Convair from reporting directly to the FAA. Then, in May 1970, during a model test run, the DC-10 blew its forward cargo door, causing the aircraft's cabin floor to collapse. This was a potential disaster as the cabin floor contained conduits which carried vital electric and hydraulic systems up and down the length of the fuselage. McDonnell Douglas placed the blame on human failure, stating that the mechanic failed to correctly seal the door. The cure was to make design changes to enable better checks on the door locking pins. The FAA is charged with overseeing commercial products and regulating them in the public interest, but this is not often done independently. They appoint Designated Engineering Representatives, DERs, to make inspections for them. These are company employees, chosen for their experience and integrity, who have the dual obligations of loyalty to their company and faithful performance of inspections. The manufacturers are therefore policing themselves, and it is generally acknowledged that conflicts of interest can arise. A number of internal memos were written citing design problems with the cargo doors and the new structural changes proposed. However, McDonnell Douglas and Convair quarrelled about who was at fault and the cost of changes, which resulted in none of them being implemented and the aircraft went into service. Then came American Airlines Flight 96.
The DC-10 was en route between Detroit and Buffalo when above the city of Windsor in Ontario, whilst climbing through 11,750 feet, the flight crew heard a distinct thud and dirt and debris flew up from the cockpit floor into their faces. The aircraft depressurized and at the same time the rudder pedals deflected full right whilst the throttles moved to idle. Captain Bryce McCormick immediately took control and attempted to reapply power, but only the wing engines, numbers 1 and 3, would respond. The number 2 engine had failed. Other control problems presented themselves. They only had control of the right elevator, and that was restricted, but they could still use their ailerons and move the horizontal stabilator. They diverted their crippled aircraft back to Detroit, but when they configured the flaps, their rate of descent was far too high to land safely. Increasing speed allowed a more normal approach, but on touchdown, the DC-10 veered right and left the runway. First Officer Whitney did an excellent job by applying full thrust reverse on the left engine and idle thrust to the right which straightened the machine up and returned it to the landing strip. They stopped only 880 feet from the end of the runway. On inspection, it was obvious that the rear cargo door had detached from the aircraft. Three months earlier, handlers had reported that the same door had not latched electrically and had to be closed manually. Three other operators had reported similar failures, and McDonnell Douglas issued a service bulletin to upgrade the latch wiring, but it wasn't compulsory and hadn't been performed on this aircraft. On the flight in question, the cargo loader closed the door electrically, and when the motor stopped whirring, he tried to operate the locking handle, but found it difficult to close without putting his knee on it. The door looked slightly ajar, but with the locking handle in place and the cockpit warning light extinguished, the engineer permitted the aircraft to fly. The investigation showed that the latches had failed to close because the wiring couldn't carry the required load to the electric motors. In addition, the locking pin system was too weak, allowing the handle to be forced closed with the locking pins out of their locking holes. In addition, the vents that allow pressure to escape safely around the cabin floor into the cargo area during a decompression were inadequate, which is why the floor partially collapsed, leading to the engine and control failures. The NTSB recommended changes to the door locking mechanism and vents for the rear cabin floor. However, the FAA failed to issue an airworthiness directive, instead of which they reached what has been termed as a gentleman's agreement with McDonnell Douglas to make changes to the door design. The FAA administrator had taken the unusual action of becoming personally involved in the problem, thereby short-circuiting the AD issuance. 
He had spoken with the president of the Douglas division of McDonnell Douglas, and the two men had agreed that the situation didn't require a far-reaching A.D., since they had a great working relationship. The FAA agreed with McDonnell Douglas that additional venting would be difficult to install and they only modified the locking system of the door by adding a small clear window to the bottom of the cargo door to allow a visual inspection of the locking pins. It was at this point that Dan Applegate wrote a comprehensive memorandum laying out the problems with the door and the cabin floor designs and making his concerns clear. In particular, he noted that the actuator system had been switched from a hydraulic system to an electric one, which he felt was less safe. He noted that the floor would be prone to failure if the door was lost, and this would likely sever the control cables, leading to a loss of the aircraft. Finally, he pointed out that this precise failure had already occurred in ground testing in 1970. He concluded by saying, The potential for long-term conveyor liability has been causing me increasing concern for several reasons. The fundamental safety of the cargo door latching system has been progressively degraded since the program began in 1968. The airplane demonstrated an inherent susceptibility to catastrophic failure when exposed to explosive decompression of the cargo compartments in 1970 ground tests. Since Murphy's Law being what it is, cargo doors will come open sometime during the 20-plus years of use ahead for the DC-10. I would expect this to usually result in the loss of the aircraft. The Applegate Memorandum got as far as his immediate supervisor, but no further. Management believed that his proposed changes would be costly to implement, and there was a debate as to who would end up paying for them, Convair or McDonnell Douglas. In addition, Applegate's contract prevented him from sending his memorandum directly to the FAA. However, it didn't take 20 years for Dan Applegate's concerns to be realised. Only two. On the 3rd of March 1974, Turkish Airlines Flight 981 was climbing out of Paris Orly Airport, an intermediate stop on its flight from Istanbul to London Heathrow. The aircraft was passing 12,000 feet when the rear cargo door burst open and was torn from its hinges, falling away from the airliner. The sudden difference in pressure between the cargo hold, now open to atmosphere, and the cabin above was about 5 psi, 0.34 of a bar, which caused part of the cabin floor to collapse separate and be forcibly ejected through the now open hatch. Along with the floor went six occupied passenger seats attached to that section of the floor. The fully recognisable bodies of the six Japanese passengers who were ejected were eventually found in a turnip field, having fallen over two miles to reach the earth. 
The loss of flight controls that the Turkish flight crew had to deal with was considerably more severe than in the American Airlines incident. When the door blew off, the primary as well as both sets of backup control cables that ran through that section of floor were completely severed, destroying the pilot's ability to control the DC-10. The aircraft almost immediately attained a 20-degree pitch-down and began to rapidly accelerate whilst the crew struggled to regain control. At some point, one of the crew members pressed their radio transmit switch, broadcasting the panic in the cockpit as they fought to raise the aircraft's nose. It took 77 seconds for the flight to terminate, when the airliner ploughed into a forest at high speed, killing all the remaining passengers and crew on board. The aircraft disintegrated into thousands of pieces, and of the 346 souls on board, only 188 were identifiable, with rescue teams having the grisly task of recovering some 20,000 body fragments. It was, at the time, the worst single aircraft disaster in aviation history. The Flight 981 aircraft had been ordered from McDonnell Douglas three months after the service bulletin to alter the cargo door was issued and was delivered to Turkish Airlines three months later. Despite this, the changes required by the service bulletin preventing the bending of the linkage seen in the Flight 96 incident had not been implemented. Through either oversight or deliberate fraud, the manufacturer construction logs showed that this work had been carried out. In addition, an improper adjustment had later been made to the locking pin mechanism. It had been filed down reducing the locking pin travel. This meant that the pins did not extend past the torque tube flanges. After Flight 96, the design changes included the small window that allowed baggage handlers to visually inspect the pins to confirm that they were in the correct position. In addition, there were information placards to show the correct and incorrect positions of the pins. This modification had been applied to Flight 981's aircraft. However, the cargo handler had not been instructed about the purpose of the indicator window. Furthermore, the instructions on the door regarding the indicator window were printed in English and Turkish. But the Algerian-born handler, who was fluent in three other languages, could read neither of these. McDonnell Douglas subsequently faced multiple lawsuits for the crash of Flight 981 by the families of the victims and others. In its defence, during pre-trial proceedings, McDonnell Douglas attempted to blame the FAA for not issuing an airworthiness directive, Turkish Airlines, for modification of the cargo door locking pins and general dynamics for an incorrect cargo door design. When it became clear that its defences were unlikely to prevent a finding of liability, McDonnell Douglas, Turkish Airlines and other associated parties settled out of court 
for an estimated $100 million, the equivalent of more than half a billion dollars in today's money. After the crash of Flight 981, the latching system was completely redesigned to prevent it from moving into the wrong position. The locking system was mechanically upgraded to stop the handle from being forced into the closed position and the FAA ordered further changes to all aircraft with outward opening doors, including the Lockheed L-1011 and Boeing 747. These changes also required vents to be cut into the cabin floor to allow pressures to equalise in the event of a blown-out door, thus preventing a catastrophic collapse of the aircraft's cabin floor and other structures that could damage an aircraft's vital systems. Wow. I, I was I was just full of you know the memories of writing that and discovering all the little shenanigans that have been going on behind the scenes uh, concerning this and of course it's such a well-known story that we've got lots of um very apt comments in the chat room particularly uh, about the competition to get the dc-10 out before uh, the L-1011, uh, you know, the first uh, kid on the block is uh, always the first one to get all the, um, uh, you know, kudos. Uh, so uh, uh, my man Mike is quite right. There were there was a, a race to get the uh, DC-10 out first. They had to work very hard on their development uh, to do that. So they were... You know, although it wasn't apparent from my research, uh, you know, they were working uh, very hard to, you know, cut corners. Um, well, it's a good thing that that kind of oversight and relationship with the FAA and manufacturers doesn't happen anymore since <laughs> yeah. since that DC-10 thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. We learned uh, our lesson there. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. kind we of. We learned that to the yeah, max, haven't right. we? Okay. Um, yeah, it has reared its ugly head much more recently. Um, mm -hmm. But it, it's one of those things, you know. The FAA is a government institution, and in order to empower them with the ability to uh, recruit and uh, put in position a sufficient number of highly trained engineers. Uh, in all the aircraft manufacturers to prevent this would require big government. And that's not something that tends to be popular uh, in your fine country. This is true. It's true. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it's difficult. You, you want oversight, but in order to do that, you have to pay for it. And that's expensive. The thing that gets me, though, is that there obviously was a man there who uh, understood exactly what the problems were. And, you know, he, he realized that from their own tests that um, the collapse of the uh, floor that separated the cabin from the cargo hold would be catastrophic to the aircraft. Interestingly, on the 747, all those control runs and vital lines go down the ceiling uh, of the cabin so there is no danger of the same sort of problem happening even though the FAA said right 
from now on we've got to insist that the door locking me mechanisms are sufficiently robust and that cabin floors have ventilation to prevent the collapse of the floor um uh, and you know it, that that is it's great that enough was learned from this the accident to you know make that uh, sacrosanct sacrosanct requirement uh, you know you do wonder why they didn't think it was important at the time yeah. the mere fact that six passengers disappeared out through that cargo hold you think that would be sufficient for it to happen but the fact that the the collapse of the floor also caused the destruction of the aircraft the entire aircraft you think well heaven's sake yeah, yeah. very sobering very sobering for sure well thank you absolutely for uh covering that uh history captain nick uh yeah that was an interesting one for me i i sort of enjoyed doing it i never really enjoyed doing accidents but I do find the skill of the investigators and the reports and doing a little bit of investigation myself uh, to be very satisfying. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Excellent. So you guys have got a little over half right, an hour to get through all the rest of the feedback. A little over a half an hour remaining uh, for us to get. Okay. Yeah, right. Sure, Liz. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to get through all this feedback. <laughs> But uh, we we'll do we'll we'll do our best. Speak faster, I'm... Jeff. Okay, I'll talk faster. <laughs> uh, we're not going to do that. We're gonna we're gonna do this right. Uh, yeah, let's, we are. Let's do um, uh, five feedback from Kevin. Uh, he says, "Greetings, APG crew. I just came across this short article regarding a suspected unapproved part. Now a confirmed unapproved part that failed, causing the unfortunate death of a pilot." Uh, the manufacturer of a defective main rotor component rotor component linked to the 2021 fa fatal crash of a Bell 212 in Canada has agreed to settle a related civil suit for $10 million. Uh, Four Arrow of Haltom City, Texas manufactured the main uh, rotor hub strap retaining pin on the first blade assembly of the accident helicopter. The pen failed after only 20 hours' time in service. Ooh, wow. That's not much. Causing the entire main rotor assembly to separate from the helicopter in flight, killing the pilot, who was the sole occupant. An investigation by Canada's Transportation Safety Board found that the pen was made from weaker steel than specified by the helicopter's OEM, and that resulted in the catastrophic failure of the main rotor assembly. According to Dallas aviation attorney Lad Sanger, who served as co-counsel in the suit filed on behalf of the pilot's family. The accident helicopter was a 1979 Bell 212 owned and operated by Yellowhead Helicopters and was being flown on a fire suppression support mission transporting fire crews near Evansburg, Alberta. The crash triggered an emergency grounding, inspection, and pin replacement, impacting 400 Bell 204, 205, and 212 models worldwide. The defective shear pin and the lack of quality control in the manufacturing process resulted in the death of a very experienced pilot and family member under routing flying conditions. I guess that means routine, right? That, routine, yeah, I think, yeah. Under routine flying conditions, said Sanger. The tragedy should never have, should have never happened. Um, and he gave us a uh, link to the 
AINonline.com uh, site where you can read more about the um, settlement. And he says, keep the blue side up unless your aircraft is blue on the bottom. Keep the blue side down in that case. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess that would mean my airplane. I, I ours, our, the bottom of my airplane is blue, so I'll keep that side down. Good. Wait, your, good bottom advice. of your airplane looks more like the ocean. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. Um, well, I it just makes me uh, realize that my prejudice against helicopters is uh, more well more justified. Founded. Yeah, it's <laughs> based on. <laughs> <laughs> based on fact mm -hmm. not fiction yeah but you know of course if if it had been if they had used a man uh, the the proper steel and manufactured it correctly perhaps this wouldn't have been a, a tragedy uh very true absolutely oh. but then again you still have to learn how to rub your tummy and pat your head that is true at the same time don't which you is, which and kick difficult. your feet back it oh, looks forwards. like you can fly a helicopter <laughs> All right. Uh, Actually, I've tried. Have you? Yeah, yeah. A real I, one? I got a, I got a, a an hour or two in a in a Wessex, hmm. uh, flying around, and that. I mean, once you get going, it's just like a proper airplane. It's mm -hmm. in the hover that the interest happens, and uh, I was doing all right until he turned off the the stability augmentation system, and then and then I started careering around the airfield. <laughs> <laughs> like, like an out of control bumper car, but there you go. <laughs> oh my! Is that what you call them in the states? Yeah, in a fairground, a bumper car. No, bumper yeah, cars, that's yes. what we call. Them. That's what I was. All number right. six. All right, number six uh, from Tim Van Ram. Uh, he said this. It's basically a a, a picture, a, a graphic, and it says the higher in rank you go, the uglier the car you drive. And this was taken from an Air Force um, airman, uh, non-commissioned officer, senior non-commissioned officer, um, Twitter post, I guess, um, or Instagram. I don't know what uh, which it is, but it doesn't matter. Uh, so the, the what does it say? The boot, uh, E1 through E3. Oh, in other words, right at the beginning, when you start off boot camp and then you're an E1 through E3. They have that nice, uh, looks like a Mustang, right? Mustang, yeah. A Ford Mustang. And then uh, when you get into the E4 through E6 uh, um, ranks, you are nice in a nice uh, Toyota pickup truck. And then, uh-oh, now we're seeing um, a change, significant change in the quality and uh, age of the vehicles. E7 through E9 uh, you're getting pr pretty far up there in the non-commissioned officer ranks, and now you're—I don't even know what that is. What kind of car is that? Is that an old uh, Toyota oh, Cressida no or something? Idea. Or I'm it's not very good with American. It's a—it's a sedan. I think that might be a Japanese car, actually. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, but it's an old one, and uh, because you know the the more rank you have. The uglier your car. I reckon it probably is the more rank you have, the more children you have. And that's yeah. why you can only your, afford a, Your priorities a change <laughs> yes. in your life. <laughs> uh, the, the CEO there, is, he's got a people carrier. Looks like a loser an cruiser. Old one. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. Uh, I've, I've driven a, very, a, a more modern version of this uh, Chrysler uh, uh, minivan. 
commanding officer uh, driving with the, it, oh, it even has uh, the the nice wood um, the yeah, treatment paneling, to the side yeah. panel wood paneling on the side. Um, yeah, I used to drive a loser cruiser. Yes, you're right, Liz. And I was a yeah, I was you got proud lots of, of service it. out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, very yeah. funny, Tim, but true actually. Okay. Wait till you yes. get the RV. Yes. It's not ugly. Thank you. Uh, Robert writes, how is turbulence info shared? He said, my flight home today encountered some clear air turbulence at cruise altitude, and the pilot came on the PA to, to apologize, saying there were no other reports in the area, which got me to think, or got me to thinking, are most turbulence reports made verbally over the radio by pilots? I found the site below that I sometimes check, but I wasn't sure exactly how the data is collected. Okay, so I need to uh, share this tab. That's what I have written to myself. Share this tab, Jeff. Tell me um, when you want the diagrams up. Okay, I'm going to do this first, Liz, uh, the okay. sharing of, of this web page that he uh, said he likes to check. Uh, put that up there. Okay, uh, this uh, website is turbulenceforecast.com. And uh, on it, you can see a map of potential turbulence areas. And then you can also, uh, another uh, view shows you pilot reports. And uh, right now, we're looking at the pilot reports of turbulence in the region. This is the entire United States. And you can see uh, the green is like maybe some light turbulence, and uh, the uh, orange is moderate. If you see any red symbols on here, that we're talking about severe turbulence and around also the Great has Lakes there. Uh, around the Great Lakes. Yeah, there's a report over there um, not too far from uh, from where you uh, are, Liz, right? Uh, yeah, just a lot of hot air around there, yeah. Lake Erie-ish uh, area. Yeah. Uh, a lot of hot air, you say. Okay. Lake Erie-ish. Yeah, Erie-ish. <laughs> I've never heard of that lake. <laughs> well, there's Lake Erie in the Lake Erie-ish area. Lake Erie. <laughs> lake Erie area. <laughs> okay, but I like ish. I like oh, to yeah, add absolutely. ish to a lot of things. Uh, uh, here's an, uh, it, are there any heights related to this? Well, there's one right here. Now I'm, uh, I've scrolled down to the – well, actually, uh, yeah, in this map, they do have the altitudes where – uh, the turbulence had. Uh, well, I'm wondering. I mean, who logs those? Because well, do the air you, traffickers have a system? Yeah, well, so we certainly don't do it. Well, if we say to air traffic control, Pyrep, and uh, we're getting you know severe turbulence or Pyrep pi rep is uh, P I R E P. That stands for pilot report. Thank you. Because we love acronyms in uh, yeah, aviation. And so a PIREP is a pilot report. And uh, when you prep it, now if we just go up there and they ask or we tell them that uh, we're getting moderate or it's light turbulence, we'd like to change altitudes or whatever, that's not a requirement for them to do anything except just keep that information so that if anybody else, else asks, they'll have that information available. If you preface it or uh, at the end of it say PIREP, I think preface is the best way to do it. Hey, we have a PIREP. Okay, that's the magic word. Now that means that whatever we're going to tell them, they have to make some kind of a to log it. report and log uh, of That's of why that. there are so few. Yes, exactly. The, the so thousands you, of airplanes. Right. So it has to be pretty significant, <laughs> really, I think, uh, for them to 
to actually show up here on this thing and for them to make a report. So you just assume that all those areas where you don't see those little symbols, uh, everything is is probably just light. I mean, who would make a pyrape of light turbulence? That's I, you know, that's a good question. <laughs> I have no idea. I've never made a pyrape. You know, it's got to be something pretty significant for me to say pyrape. Uh, we also say pyrep if we have like a, a wind shear encounter. Sam Dawson's got and, a really uh, interesting comment. Oh, here, Sam has an interesting comment. Let me go to that. Uh, called Skypath sensors in our EFBs detect turb. Oh, I didn't know they had that mm. technology in your EFB. Detect turbulence and upload it automatically via Wi-Fi. Other airplanes on Skypath see it immediately. I even get audio warnings of turbulence on my route. Well, I'll show you what oh, we I would love use. to hear those audio warnings. So they're going, ah, ah, ah. That's the severe warning right there. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Nick. That sounded exactly like what you would hear. Okay, so we have this website. has these things, and it's getting some of the data from uh, NOAA, uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Did I get that right? I think that's right. Okay, so I'm going to stop screen sharing there. And then I'm going to show you, or Liz is going to show you, that first screen. This is from my EFB, and uh, it, I don't, I'm pretty sure it doesn't have any capability of actually recording turbulent conditions from, its device, uh, from the device itself and sending it in. So it's a little bit, uh, Sam, Sam's airline has a little bit fancier system. But this is uh, something that we use at Acme, and it's a, uh, a weather app. And in this display, it still has the route from my last flown flight from Gulfport, uh, Biloxi International to Atlanta uh, a few days back. And uh, I, in this view, I've selected the uh, little icon that shows the little seatbelt uh, right below the uh, yeah. Wi-Fi on the left side there. And uh, that's showing the um, turbulence at that particular level. And in this case, I think it was, it was basically surface. Uh, show some, uh, but you can you can move the altitude on the right side. You can see there there's a a way for you to to put your altitude in there, and then as you move through different altitudes, the the color areas change, and uh, you can kind of get an idea of where the turbulence might be in that box that or that actually it's kind of a diamond shaped mm -hmm. uh, polygon uh, that I clicked on and uh, revealed the information about this turbulence plot. Talks about an advisory about uh, I can't read it now, but uh, says something about turbulence, light to moderate turbulence, and it kind of gives you an altitude range, flight levels, flight level three zero three three zero to three nine zero, I think, and yeah. then and usually they'll put in there uh, like this one here. It says source pyreps, so mm -hmm. based on pilot reports, uh, they uh, identified this area. That you know, you don't want to be flying through there probably between three three zero and three nine zero because it might be a little bit bumpy. Uh, that area below in the bottom part of the screen is a, a vertical view of uh, the different altitudes and uh, cool. turbulence levels. So this is a very handy tool because you can see on the left, the uh, Gulfport is where we left, and Atlanta is our destination, and you can see the areas that are green. In, in this case, the the worst. The worst uh, turbulence uh, to to expect based on this tool is maybe um, light. Really, it's all green. Maybe a little Do bit you darker. Remember green. getting any turbulence on that? I flight? don't remember getting uh, any turbulence at all on that on that flight. Um, 
And then uh, you show the next screen. Uh, there are different ways you can use this tool. Uh, in this case, I selected the uh, little the little cloud or the satellite view, uh, and I brought it back because the area that we were looking at before really didn't have much satellite uh, imagery. Uh, but in the western portion of the United States, and I took this just a couple of hours ago. I just did a screenshot out there in the uh, in the mountain west. I guess you call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there yep. are some uh, uh, activities, some satellite uh, returns, and then I clicked on the thing again, which uh, shows a convective potential. So the area that shows some green in that uh, satellite box right there on the on the left side uh, shows that there's potential that that can grow into thunderstorm activity. Um, and then, uh, the other view is the one where we can show, um, NexRad radar imagery as well. So it kind of gives you that. This is something that we have until recently haven't had in the airplane, a, a bird's eye view of actual, uh, radar well, data, great. uh, in real time. And, uh, it's very helpful to have. Uh, and yeah, um, it was quite often that the passengers could pull up, yeah. um, information <laughs> websites that had better information than we did right at the front and finally i guess after complaining about it enough <laughs> yeah. uh, the manager said you know what maybe hmm, but we should give them the ability to tap into that wi-fi and get some real-time information for yeah route absolutely planning. no it, it, it was a boon when it was just kicking in when i retired mm-hmm. and it was an absolute boon to be able to predict ahead and see it change as um uh, more people reported it or the weather forecast changed every few hours and because uh, th- th- pilot reports are great they uh but not every pilot's well calibrated to report the correct amount of turbulence and it only of course it only affects him at his altitude um i think the 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 ideal one was if you were following someone say 100 miles ahead in clear air with no expected turbulence and he suddenly came up and said wow i've just encountered you know moderate to severe uh, uh clear air turbulence uh something you have, would have no idea was there you could hit your stopwatch and go right well it's going to take me you know 12 minutes to get there i'm going to put the seatbelt signs on now and let the crew uh sort the aircraft out and secure everything because it's going to get a bit rough uh, and that was ideal so you know but that sort of pirate was vital. Um, the other ones for light turbulence things, you'd think, well, that's a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the uh, so uh, sorry, Robert was asking us, you know, how do we get our our information? And we talked about some of these tools that we have. Sam shared what they use um, at his airline. I showed you our our tool, our app on our um, EFB and iHaul Boxes has a, another tool that I have not heard of. Uh, when my phone rings right after my flight and I see it's my wife, I know that there's turbulence up ahead. <laughs> yeah, that's a different kind of turbulence. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, getting, the, getting the reports in real time from other pilots uh, reporting to air traffic control um, is probably the most accurate way to get you know real-time information yeah. another comment particularly if you know the guys on your track and yeah. is you know 50 miles ahead at your height then you know it's going to be pretty damned accurate and right. what he's feeling you're going to be feeling in 10 minutes 
And you know, so. and the, the the whole point of this is to, to provide as good a ride as possible for our passengers and our flight attendants, or as Captain Nick just mentioned, they're up. You know, they're not in their seats with their seatbelt fastened. And they're yourselves. Up. Uh, and, you know, and us too, but we're always up there in our seats with our seatbelts fastened. So, you know, we're, we're okay, but it's the flight attendants that you really, and, and passengers, if, if, uh, you know, you're flying along and you don't think you're going to be encountering turbulence. So you have the seatbelt light off and everything else. So it's very important to know this information. Um, and that's why I, people sometimes, you know, make fun of certain airlines that may give <laughs> reports about, but it's important. That's important. I know. Okay. I get it. You know, you, you guys, um, uh, think that we, uh, Old ask report. about or report, uh, it too much, but it's, it's, uh, I think an essential thing to do. And, and you guys are just jealous because you're, you know, yeah, don't fly for an acne. Um, anyway, that's true, but I may have a reputation. <laughs> I know. And again, I don't know exactly because it doesn't seem to me that we do it any more or less. No, you don't. Than anybody I mean, else. I, but, I, I don't think you do. I just think it's people having a dig. And, that, and what's funny about it is, a, what's so funny, yeah, so what's so funny about it to me is when I started out back in the late eighties and all throughout the nineties, the, the airline that we always made fun of for doing the same thing. Uh, was American Airlines, and then somehow it just shifted to. Oh, Acme, Acme. darn! Yeah, Acme. <laughs> <laughs> Let me make a little mark here on the. Uh, how do I do that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, need to uh, edit that. Um, anyway, um, what okay. was the other thing that uh, was supposed uh, to address? Sam, Sam? What Sam was saying something. Oh, some aircraft have sensors that send info to uh, NOAA on turbulence as well that we can see on yeah. our weather map. I think it's called. I'm not sure what it's called, Sam. Uh, but yes, uh, and I, it, uh, we can. Oh, that was another thing I should have done. There are several different views that we can pull up on this thing, but um, we can actually show airplanes that have these systems that are built in accelerometers built into their airplanes, mostly the newer 737s and the newer Airbuses uh, and the narrow bodies like the 320s and 321s. And we can actually see, you know, what kind of airplane it is. And it shows exactly what the EDR is, I think. Um, and I don't, don't ask me what EDR stands for, like eddy dissipation rate, maybe. Ooh, I may have gotten that right. The eddy, you know, like the little ripples. Of, it's the equidistance ratio. Or, or that. But I don't think that has anything to do with turbulence. Um, or it could be um, strong intestinal turbulence after stopping for lunch at Taco Bell. I'm not sure if that would affect those be. sensors or not. Yeah. Um, could be. Thank you, Tim, though, for the suggestion. Uh, Robert mentions uh, asks why some pilots are more aggressive and how they seek smoother levels. Uh, for me, uh, not at all. Uh, because, you know, when you're flying a 14-hour flight, you uh, are really trying to hit your optimum flight levels and hold them because it was essential if you were going to actually get to your destination that you didn't spend extended periods either too high or too low because uh, your fuel consumption uh, obviously is worse and uh, you might, you know, reserves are cut down to such a minimum that you might not make your destination if you do it too long. And often on the routes, the long haul routes, 
Um, all the aircraft going to the same destination are on the same route. And once you give up your optimum flight level, some other so-and-so is going to climb into it. And when you try and get back up to that flight yep. level, oh, Out no, you can't. It's occupied now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we would quite often just have to go, we're going to have to grin and bear this mm -hmm. because I know there's some damn 74, 747 that's been asking for our <laughs> flight level. And as soon as I go down, he's going to go up and we'll never get there again. Uh, so you had to think tactically, because, <laughs> not just, oh, this is going to be 10 minutes of discomfort for the passengers, but then we might end up diverting <laughs> because we can't get our optimal flight level back. Is it really always the Boeings that do that, though? No. <laughs> yeah, they're horrible. Okay. They cruised faster than us. So <laughs> if there was a Boeing behind us wanting our flight level, they knew they'd have to often get way ahead of us before they could climb. Yeah. Uh, and if we descended then they'd immediately pop up to our flight level and accelerate over the top of us and then they just sat there they wouldn't keep on going ahead so that in back, a couple of hours they, they'd, they'd just <laughs> slow down you'd see them do it deliberately they're such so-and-sos those boeing pilots i wouldn't trust them as far as i could throw them oh uh, you know those cowboys <laughs> <laughs> too bad horrible people yeah they're horrible people Ten minutes, Absolutely. boys. Uh, ten minutes, Liz. Is uh, control room is calling out. Um, but before we move on, uh, uh, E D R is Eddie E D D Y uh, dissipation rate. So that was pretty you close. Were right, ding. Or did well, I hit from oh. one of Thomas Edison's uh, inventions, wasn't it? Um, no. No. You sure? No. Oh. <laughs> Eddie Van Halen. Oh, it has something to do with Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> according to Liz. Oh, <laughs> excellent. Uh, excellent. Okay. Uh, I don't know if that helped it or not, Robert, but... Um, I liked it. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It worked, I guess. Good. Shall we do uh, eight? Yeah. Yeah. Eight. Okay. Um, here we go. This is from Aaron and uh, also sent in by Richard Nash and First Officer Rico. Um Hi, APG crew. Uh, and this is from Aaron. I always enjoyed your show. I've been listening to you for years and you've managed to keep it interesting and fun, uh, but not educational. No, he didn't. I added that part. Uh, every so often you discuss the NOTAMs and uh, how useful they are uh, or how useful they are. So, if uh, So, of course, when I ran across this video, I immediately thought about sending it to you. I hope you like it. NOTAMs, the majestic endangered species. Blue skies and all the good flying stuff for you, Aaron. Now, this uh, group, um, organization called Ops Group, O-P-S-G-R-O-U-P, um, and I get uh, periodic emails from them. It's kind of expensive to join their organization, and it doesn't make sense for an individual like me to uh, spend that much money on it. But I do uh, really do appreciate the uh, once- I think it's once a month they send out a uh, an email with some really interesting stuff on it. And a couple of years ago, they sent out one and they they basically said, "Hey, we've published this uh, our guide, a field guide to NOTAMs, uh, what used to be called notices to airmen and now notice to air missions." And uh, it, it was it's very very funny. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. You gotta you gotta download it and, and read it. Uh, it's very very funny. So funny, in fact 
I guess another couple of groups decided that they would uh, kind of make a video version of the field guide to NOTAMs that uh, the ops group uh, came up with. And I'm finding the video right now. And uh, I'll play that here shortly. Um, but uh, it is very, very funny. I high, highly recommend. If you don't look at the uh, the the PDF the field guide to notums, at least watch this video because it is it is hilarious. And uh, I'll play just a little bit of it. I'm you know I don't have permission to play it, and I don't want to get um, anybody upset with me and or sue us. Uh, but um, let's just play a little a little teaser just to kind of show you that you really do need to uh, watch this yourself. So here we go. For a century, a wild creature has roamed the skies, untroubled, unchanged, and unchallenged. This magnificent species is known as the Notum, and its life purpose is to provide pilots essential real-time safety information. The Notum has thrived in our aviation ecosystem, untouched by the technological advancements that have claimed the lives of other primitive forms of communication, such as Morse code, telegram, and Lawrence navigation. But the recent collapse of this creature's ecosystem is a grave reminder of its fragile habitat. On any given flight, an aviator may encounter hundreds of Notums, and thus identification and classification become of paramount importance. So let us embrace this opportunity to study and cherish this remarkable creature while it still thrives. With this field guide, embark on your own journey of discovery, uncovering the many varieties of notums that still exist in the wild. Some specimens may appear benign, but can be poisonous, sometimes fatal. The clock is ticking. The era of the Notum as we know it is quickly coming to a close. We hope. <laughs> All right, so that's the intro, and uh, that was just... <laughs> that's uh, great. Oh, I've been there. Oh, is that... Uh, that's in Tokyo. Tokyo yeah. That's oh, the yeah. uh, Shibuya Crossing. Uh, there's a Starbucks up on to your left. I've sat in that Starbucks and uh, drank coffee and looked out on that yeah. crossing. If you look closely, you can actually see a picture of you. you can, I can see you. <laughs> almost. You can almost, almost see Starbucks me in the going. window. <laughs> Just above that uh, Sutea okay. um, store. Um, that's one hour, one hour, one minute and 28 seconds of, what's the uh, total here? It looks like about little over seven minutes long so it won't take much of your time and trust me you will uh you will Giggle. find it uh yes uh, time well spent gets a thumbs up from captain <laughs> thumbs up from captain nick and captain absolutely Jeff. yes there we go anywhere that has, I, I think it's called the shibuya crossing yeah anyway it's, it's a famous uh, sort of five-way okay. pedestrian crossing five in way. tokyo wow yeah. um okay you know um, what? I think that's it, Jeff. That's going to be it, I think. Four minutes left. So. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I haven't finished my beer yet. Well, we can talk yeah, after we, uh, we end the, the show, and you can. Guy, if you want. Oh, yeah, okay. Let's do. Yeah, let's do the jetpack pack guy uh, number nine. Yeah. Because, oh yeah. Absolutely. Because we keep uh, we we received this I quite know, some time ago. It. We keep pushing it on to the next thing. So, uh, this is from Matt. He said, uh, "Hello, APG crew, Mike Rome, Romeo." 
uh, here from the, I guess that's a. I thought he was called Matt. It it's is another Matt. OB. Oh, it's another opposing bases guy. Oh, okay. God. You okay. know, <laughs> we're not their trash can for useless well, apparently we feedback. Are. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, he says, Mike Romeo here from the Frozen North Center. I learned about this great podcast from another aviation theme show starring some odd guys. Yeah. Known yeah, only by their odd. initials from a place only known as the Mythical Triad. Of course, he's talking about, um, uh, I can't remember, Arhag. That's what I'd like to call them, Arhag. Um, I stumbled across this image attached while on Reddit uh, a while back. I'm back. Okay. And uh, so we're talking about the image. And it was like a single image from Reddit that I had to kind of break down into separate images so yeah. we could see what's going on here. Um, he said, so, uh, trying to put him up? He, yeah. yeah, so what, put the first one up. He says, uh, I saw this image on Reddit and wondered if it might be the source of the mysterious jetpack guy from the L.A. Los Angeles basin. Haven't heard much about them recently, unless, of course, I'm late to the program and this has been sussed out already. No, we haven't sussed nope. it out yet. A few shows ago, there was a discussion about having landing gear down for a ditching and how that doesn't tear up the airframe as bad as verse. Oh, okay, we're also we're on a different subject there, aren't we? Um, okay, so let's uh, we'll we'll return to his uh, his uh, feedback here after we look at some of these pictures. So uh, we're looking at I don't know. It looks like dead people face down in the uh, in, in the in the field. With a little propeller there at the front. Oh, a little propeller at the front. Okay. Yeah, there's some sort of remote uh, control box at the front. Okay, uh, there's a controller. Radio controlled, yeah. Yeah, radio control. Okay, and some. Oh my God! Launcher. That's launching. New York. Yeah, it is. They're launching, they're, they're launching, launching these, these uh, things. people into the air. Uh huh. And, and they're flying around. They look like people that flying. They look like Superman. Yeah, exactly. Supermen. Uh, superheroes that fly. Super ladies, even. Or super la Yeah, look at them. Oh, my they're God. Flying around. You know what? These are radio control flying people. Yes, they are. So. Wow. That's uh, what he was looking at. I, I get, you know, it's possible that that may have been what was happening wow, on exactly, the LA yes. Basin, for sure. I mean, if you're if it's one's flashing past the cockpit, which is what has been occurring, these have been spotted by people on the approach to uh, LAX, mm -hmm. and you don't get long to to spot them. They're they're there and gone in right. you know less than a second. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, yeah, something like that could really look like a real person. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I could definitely see it. Some of these photos yeah. or yeah, images, um, yeah, like that one, Liz, thanks. Uh, you look up and you think, uh, there, there are people flying up there. Hmm. <laughs> wow, <laughs> what is going on? Well, you'd, you'd assume they had a jetpack on because how else could they be flying up Right. There? I mean, they're not actual superheroes. They could be angels. Just saying. They could be. They haven't got any wings, Jeff. The yeah. angels have wings. Oh, Big that's wings. True. Okay. Well, maybe they're transparent. Anyway. Um, all right. So uh, Matt Reed uh, continues. A few shows ago, there was a discussion about having landing gear down for a ditching and how that doesn't tear up the airframe as badly uh, versus gear up. I wonder if that's a holdover from tailwheel, tailwheel days, DC3 where gear down would almost certainly result in a nose over. So the training of the day was to leave gear up. Thus, like so many things in aviation, it has become, that's the way we've always done it. And we have done it that way ever since. Yeah, that could be. 
Could be. Well, it's possible, except that I, I tend to give the aircraft manufacturers more credit because every time they design an airplane, they look at, uh, you know, worst-case scenarios mm -hmm. and examine how the aircraft they've designed will behave in a ditching, for example. Yeah. So I don't think they're really going to let their ex possible experience, you know, <laughs> designing tailwind airplanes no to guess. influence how they would... Uh, give advice for modern airliners, um, you know, particularly for companies like Airbus who've never designed a tailwheel airplane. True. So, n not sure about that, but it's an interesting thought. That's for interesting sure. Interesting thought for sure. And uh, he says, anyway, great show, great crew, great banter. You cover news and events in an interesting and enjoyable fashion, and the post production work is phenomenal. Editing the oh, chapters, yeah, Jeff, et cetera. Keep marvelous. it up. Uh, well, no, oh, someone who notices chapters. I know. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wow. We've it, got a listener who read because I do it every time for Plain mm -hmm. Tales, and no. I wonder why the hell am I doing this? Is to make it ever that, seen No, them? you're doing it to make it easier on me when I <laughs> oh, yeah. have to take your chapter images. <laughs> like I want to do that. Oh. <laughs> I, I know. But, you know, it is it is an enhancement that we like to do because it we, is. we love you all out there. So I'm we glad. like to give you the best possible product we can. That's true. And so thank you, Matt, for mentioning that. We do appreciate it. And uh, it says, Matt Reed, Minneapolis Center ATC is an air traffic controller, and he's a, uh, a certified CFI. flight instructor, uh, commercial, wow. single-engine land, single-engine uh, sea, and um, multi-engine land ratings. Nice. So just, if he's got single engine C, does that mean he can't land on a lake? Hmm. I don't know. You'll have to ask Matt. Um, yeah. And he's also an AMP and an EIEIO. Wow. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Guy, yeah. Wow. That's a lot. That's pretty amazing. You got to keep his contact yeah. information. Well, while we we're thinking, ask. guys, can I? Uh, I forgot to mention after the plane tale, mm -hmm. um, Willett. Greg Willits, who uh, did the oh yeah uh, little voiceover section voice. inside the last plane tale. Uh -huh. um, if you ever have any voiceover work, you've heard how wonderful his uh, voice is. Please bear him in mind. Uh, GregWillits.com, and uh, he does fantastic different. Uh, uh, American accents. Well, I'm sure he can do other accents as well as uh, American, but he's just got a wonderful quality of voice. Uh, and not only a great quality voice, but he's a very qualified or quality individual. And uh, absolutely, just yeah, the sort of guy, guy you'd want to uh, invest in. Thanks, Greg. Trust. I had no idea until I was listening to your plane tale. I went, oh, there's Greg. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't live very that far from me. I should, I should see you sometime, Greg, if you're listening. Um, all right, let's, uh, go ahead and wrap this baby up right. and, uh, let's talk in about a diaper. Yeah. Or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. That means that this is a bunch of crap. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, it will be okay. shortly. All right. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and point you to our website, airlinepilotguy.com, uh, which is a place where you can learn all kinds of stuff about our show. I'm trying to find our little, here we go. Look at that. There's a graphic of uh, what it looked like uh, back when we were uh, publishing episode oh my God, 418. That's, that's more than a hundred shows I know, ago. a while ago. <laughs> uh, but here we have a tab uh, for podcasts and APG on YouTube, APG Crew, Plain Tales, APG Library. 
Tiffany does uh, that for us. Thank you, Tiffany. Coffee fund information, uh, the APG store, uh, ways for you to contact us, and uh, the community calendar and more. Even you can Jeff, search can you for mention stuff. the search feature if they're looking? If yeah, they, they can use the little search feature. Yeah, so I'll mention that list. Thank you. Uh, up there, there's you see the little uh, magnifying glass. Now this is only in certain views. Like you're looking at this on your laptop or your computer. If you're looking at this on your phone. You may not see that little search function, but if you uh, are looking at on in this view, you can click on that search, uh, that magnifying glass, and then if you're looking for a particular topic, uh, or, topic or a particular episode item. or news item, you can uh, enter it in and hit you know search, and it'll take you to all the search results, and you might be able to find what you're looking for that way. So, good uh, good thing, good tool to use if you have access to it. And, uh, all right, we are also on social media. And, uh, Captain Nick, would you like to tell our audience this, about that? Yes. Okay. Uh, if you're a facey bookie and someone cloned my Facebook page the oh, other day nice. and started sending out friend requests, so if you get one from me and you're already a friend, then you know it's a dodgy one. Anyway, I, I've, that stopped now because I've changed all oh, the good. security stuff. Anyway, Facebook, airline pilot guy, all one word is what you need to search for. If you're a Twitter fan, then um, at ABG crew. And if you're an Instagram person, uh, the same one, ABG crew, you don't need the at. And if you're interested in doing something more personal to the APG, then Ooh. we have our own Slack account. I'm interested in personal app? things. A dating Ooh. app. Is that right? Are we going to are we going to reveal that <laughs> oh, today? About personal. You know, well, I, I mean, hope not. I'm thinking maybe I should uh, come up with a dating app, and then I'll be able to find some. Anyway, I think you have. Moving it's on. called the APG Show. Uh, okay, right. That's the dating app for me. Yeah, well, just go, keep going to those meetups. Okay. Right. Uh, let's see if uh, you and Ken have a date coming up. Yeah, I have a I have a date with Ken on Tuesday. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Uh, Is and he Brett, Bobby's friend? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Um, maybe that's his wife. You oh, never know. Could be. Um, but uh, let's uh, try to move off of this and talk about Slack and uh, see if uh, Hillel is available for us to uh, tell us. About. Hey, Hillel, can you tell us about Slack? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. That's okay. We know it's always going to be the case. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. All right. Thanks a lot, Hillel. Appreciate it. Well Jeff, done, man. would you loof on my back again? No. <laughs> what, again? <laughs> Why did he say again? That's, uh, I don't know. How more, many times have you done that? More. We'll talk about this later. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, what else to say here? Oh, 
Liz, come on in on video here. We have Hello, to guys. say thank you to Liz. Thank you, Liz. The hard work that you do. And I mean, I really mean it. I'm not just saying that to say it. I mean, she is awesome. Does a lot of work behind the scenes. My Thank pleasure. you so much. You don't have to say it every week, but I really appreciate it. Oh, you do. Absolutely. No, that's part of the contract. I have to <laughs> say it every week. I'm renegotiating. And then I have to pay big bucks if I forget to do it, which I've done on a few occasions. And yeah, uh, yeah she, she never lets me hear the end anyway, of it. Anyway, that was a great show. Really <laughs> glad Nick could join us for a while. Yeah, me too. Season. Cool. And yes. Not you, oh, the, the other Nick. one. Oh, <laughs> go away. We're always here. Right, I'm off. Oh, no. You've hurt his feelings again. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, uh, don't don't know when we're going to be doing the show next week, but we'll let you know via social, the social meets. And uh, until then, have a great oh, weekend. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Hang on. Mike, Dana, and Micah, today's Tiffany's birthday. You oh. better wish her a big happy birthday. Okay. Tiffany, our librarian, happy birthday to happy you. Birthday, oh, yeah. And, happy birthday, Tiffany. Yes. Uh, can I have one of your little blue boxes with something for my wife, please? Because it's her birthday soon. I don't think she has anything to do with that retail. Sure? Yeah, maybe she's in she New York does. State, yeah. but not in New York. Yeah, I was hoping for a oh, discount. You're going to confuse Nick again, Liz, with the whole I New know. York thing. Hi, <laughs> Mohammed. We're just signing off. Yeah, well, kind of better late than never, Mohammed. Yeah. Made it under the wire. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're signing off. And uh, we'll hang out here for a few minutes uh, after we stop the broadcast and uh, and, and talk to y'all. Oh, show title. Talk show title. Yes. Jeff has to do his sign off. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And until then, wishing, well, okay, so we hope right, you have okay. a great. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you have a great week, a great weekend. And until then, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care. And God bless. Tailwinds. Yeah, I've got tablets. Bye. Ta-ta for now. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy